Good to have you here, three and out on this Tuesday, Kevin, BJ, and Ben, and we've got plenty to uh, to get to here on the show. Uh, Mike Hollis, former Pro Bowl Jaguars kicker, will join us here on the program. All uh, of the NFL playoff games this weekend coming down to the final play, and three of those off of the leg of a kicker. So we'll talk to Mike Hollis about that coming up in just a little bit. Of course, the NFL's got all kind of news: who's retiring, who maybe isn't retiring, who's thinking about retiring. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll also uh, hear from Kylie McDaniel, McDaniel, excuse me, ESPN Baseball Insider. Of course, the baseball labor talks uh, going on as we speak. Maybe have an update uh, this afternoon, and we hope to get that update from Kylie McDaniel. Also, baseball, kind of funny, they're going through this, uh, BJ and Ben, and we're expected to have the latest Hall of Fame class announced uh, coming up at 4 o'clock. So a little bit of everything uh, going on in and around the uh, baseball world, but baseball labor, labor negotiations ongoing, of course, Spring training usually set to begin with pitchers and catchers reporting around Valentine's Day. Of course, there is no deal uh, at this point, but a little bit of progress potentially uh, yesterday as the sides met for the first time since December 2nd uh, from Jeff Passan, ESPN.com. In the face-to-face meeting, which lasted about two hours, the union offered a broad proposal in which it dropped its request for age-based free agency and significantly cut the amount of revenue sharing it asked the league to funnel away from small market teams according to sources. So apparently uh, there's some room for negotiation there. I think there's other things uh, that they're trying to do with the players would like, and that is to bump the average salary up for mid-level players. Ben, I think uh, people talk about that all the time is you have the guys at the top that everybody knows, and you can do that in any league. You got your Aaron Rodgers, your Tom Brady's, guys like that who are making a lot of the money. You got your guys who are fresh uh, into the game on rookie deals, and then you have your mid-level guys who are the guys that, make up the bulk of your league, probably not overly famous outside of the city they play in, and don't really make a bulk of the money. And since the last collective bargaining agreement, the union has said the average mid-level player's salary has gone from $11 million down to $3 million a season. That's a significant drop, and you would say, well, what's the difference? Uh, guys are getting $50 million, and you can extend guys on rookie deals, and you can become the Miami Marlins if you want to, which is we'll pay... And then when it comes time, anybody that costs any kind of money will let go and will bring up a bunch of dudes on rookie deals and have very little payroll. And I think that is a problem uh, for Major League Baseball as they see it because they're not the only one. Anytime you hit rebuild, if you are a mid-level guy that wants any kind of money, sorry, man, we're not gonna, we may have a star that we give money to to sell some tickets. Everybody else is going to be on a rookie deal while we rebuild this thing. And I think that's what they're trying to look out for, the guys in the middle who used to get the one- and two-year deals for $20 million, who are now getting a one- and two-year deal worth about $8 million total, and they've really seen that kind of mid-level stuff come down. That's one sticking point. Obviously, gears to get to free agency is another one. And so they do have some things to work out, but maybe some some signs of at least progress that I think both sides understand a work stoppage would not go over well for the sport. For everybody who has uh, has a problem with the players, uh, versus the owners, you have a problem with certain players uh, when it comes to the owners. And I know, uh, I know, BJ, something we talked about, people are more favorable when it comes to the owners. But this is about priorities. This is about being able to shift priorities and what the priority. Kevin says something that I think people need to like not let uh, leave their mind. The bulk of every league is the mid-tier players. That is the bulk of it. The guys that, you know, the guys that uh, are not like getting endorsement deals who don't have national commercials. Look, I was a second-round pick, and I thank God for that every single day. I, I was able to re-sign with a team uh, after my fourth year. But the more I was on the roster, the more I realized 
This thing is not fair across the board. My a a guy who doesn't start or who is not a big-name player's contribution is not less of those guys who get more opportunities. The reason why baseball goes on is because the Mike Trouts of the world, when they miss games, guess what? You don't even you don't even really feel it because the Angels are still going to run out there. But negotiations are more than just, quote, millionaires versus billionaires. This is about this is about former players. This is about this is about this is about this is about how do you take care of uh, the former players when they're no longer playing? There's a lot. The business of baseball is what's going on now. BJ, think about it. I don't know how many players it is uh in 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 Major League Baseball, but four guys, four players and lawyers are at the negotiating table against what? 30 owners? Think about how much of a disadvantage if every owner, if every other owner came in with their representation of versus four players and some lawyers. I'm just saying it's not it's not in favor of the players, and it's always going to come down to the players who make up the league, that be the mid tier or lower tier players. So I I think it's more the perception of it doesn't look good, and I know you don't don't want to have a work stoppage, but think about it. But think but guess guess who doesn't care if you have a work stoppage. The $50 million guys, they don't care if you got a work stoppage. They still get the money. Guess who can ill afford to do it? The mid-tier. So the people who the people who need the money the most, they don't want a work stoppage. Problem is they're not at the negotiating table. So we'll see what happens. Well, and news all over the place, yeah. Kevin, including ad, as we speak, some recent developments. Yeah, Jeff Passan uh, said, hey, the talks for today are over. Here's some of the things uh, that happened, and Ben will probably appreciate some of this in terms of negotiations. In a couple of tweets here, I'll read what he said. Uh, MLB agreed to accept parameters of a pre-arbitration bonus pool for top 30 in war. Basically, your best young players can get uh, uh, a little bit more money there. MLBPA is seeking, this is the players, seeking $105 million in that pool. The league, and this is to give to guys pre-arbitration, so very young players who are good. MLB Player Association wants $105 million in that pool. The league offered 10. Okay, that, you're, not, you're not close on wow. that. Uh, you've got some, some, some room, but again... What 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 in any negotiation, whether you're buying a house or whatever, hey, I'm selling a house. I'm gonna offer. I'm gonna put out. A, I say I want above market value, and then people trying to buy it are gonna say, hey, they said he wants 200 for this house. Let's throw out an offer of 175. They'll laugh at it. We'll laugh at theirs, and we'll meet somewhere uh, down the road uh, and, and try to get this thing done. So I think that's at least a starting point, even as absurd as that uh, difference may be. Uh, MLB. Offered the players a raise in the minimum salary to six hundred fifteen thousand. Again, you're talking about veteran minimum guys. You probably don't hear a whole lot of way down the bench players, rookies uh, who are or guys just coming off the rookie deal who haven't had a great six hundred fifteen. Players want seven hundred seventy five thousand as the minimum. Again, you're not that far off. My guess is maybe you meet at six seventy five, seven hundred somewhere in there, and you you potentially move forward. And MLB withdrew their offer to change how arbitration. Work. So, according to Jeff Passon, there's not going to be a deal. There never was going to be a deal, but you're, you're sitting at the table. He says his takeaway in a tweet, uh, a pre-arbitration bonus pool gets the best young players paid more. Players wanted it, and it's a good thing for them. Players are laughing at the $10 million offer. It's far too low. Negotiations will change that. So, there's some of the things coming out of the negotiations today. There with the MLB and the union trying to uh, obviously get this thing done. Well, obviously, there is a lot uh, to discuss. I mean, this has not been, you were telling us this in the show meeting, you know, when you talk about a players association uh, negotiating a new contract, it's not just, well, what percentage of the revenue are they getting? What percentage of the revenue are we getting? It's a very complex, multifaceted, dynamic um, set of parameters that not only applies to current players, but future players as well. 
But I wanted to ask you guys this just just gut because I'm kind of eyes wide open on this, and I've always had sort of a pessimistic feeling about baseball starting on time. I believe we're about what two weeks away from from pitchers and catchers from, reporting yeah. from when spring training would normally. I, to me, I think most fans, if you miss a couple of weeks of spring training, that doesn't really register. I I think that's okay. Now maybe that has an impact on certain players at the major league level, but in terms of the blowback or the feedback from the fan base, if you miss 10 days, 14 days of spring training into the day, I don't think anyone cares. Does this feel like a compromise that's emerging so that baseball starts on time? Or is it too early to have a guess on that? Uh, I think it's too early to guess on that. I think, obviously, baseball would like to start on time. I mean, spring training. Yeah, I don't mean with spring training. I mean mean opening day. By and large, I think. Again, you say people don't care about that. You know who does care about it? All those towns in Florida who get people to come and watch games and buy hotels oh, and all that true. kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. They they like having spring training, but you're probably your major league player, uh, your Freddie Freemans, your Ozzy Albies, uh, guys like that. Give me two and a half weeks of solid baseball, and and by solid baseball, now obviously think about how they do it now. Hey, you come in. All right, Ozzy, it's spring training game number one. You'll get two at bats. Go hit the golf course. It's fine. Come again, get some some field work, some drill work. Give them a couple of weeks of drill work. Give them a couple of weeks of games where, again, and when I say games, I'm talking about probably Freddie Freeman staying in the whole game, four or five at-bats a night. They could be ready in a couple of weeks. The pitchers are what you have more concern about as far as getting stretched out. But I think, again, a 26-man roster, which was uh, put out there, I think some of that stuff uh, you'll see bargained in. I think the DH is something. And to me, that seems like something that both sides will give in on, on the DH. It just, hey, we'll pay a guy to give us more offense, generate more more runs, more viewers, more money, whatever. Another reason to come to the ballpark. So I think those are things that are will be negotiated out relatively easy. This is the the quote then boring stuff that people look at and go, mm-hmm. oh come on. But as as you said, very important to the league. You say, oh come on, you're one saying six fifteen, one saying seven seventy five. I mean, if I'm on a if I'm on a minimum deal, that's a big difference. That's a that's a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, that's a that's a that's a big. Big difference to a guy who's on a minimum deal. So, uh, you know, those are some of the meat and potatoes. But as you said, it's up to the league to look out for the mid-level guys, for your your veteran minimum guys who have been in the league six, seven, eight years who aren't going to make the $30, $40, $50 million contract that we see in the news all the time. Yeah, and this is – this. I mean, you got to be able to play hardball, and uh, this is something that I really didn't understand when I was in the National Football League is I was a football player by trade. And that's, and that's what I did the best. I didn't understand what happens away from the field. But, and the problem is that's what's going on now. You're being manipulated by what you, what you do not know. Look at how big of a difference it is. Now, this is what the owners are saying. Okay, the owners are already thinking in the future and the present. They say, if we give them 7 to 75 in 2022, the next time they come back around, that's the, that's the starting point. They got to start at 7 to 75. So I do agree that sometimes these, these, these uh, players' associations – they they usually just take it what these owners give them unless they, unless the players really really like show a lot of concern. Look, I'm telling you, six hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. Six hundred thousand dollars for a person that's paying a hundred and something games before taxes. When the one guy and look, and I'm not mad, I am not mad at Trout, you know, and Harper and those guys, but I'm I'm scratching and clawing for what he makes in a game. That's one game check for him, depending on how much he's making, and that's what I'm making for the year. Because the guys, look, when we, Kevin, you always telling me when you talk about like minor league baseball, you're fighting for those guys. Guys that get called up, that spend that spend their. Well, own I think careers. that's that's the other thing you you don't think about is like you get called up for 
for uh, from the minor leagues. Like, right, say, like, right. and, and this is again in the weeds baseball stuff. But you get called up in June, and you're up for two weeks. You get paid the major league minimum for two weeks. So whatever one one hundred and sixty second of six fifteen or seven seventy five is, that's what you get paid. So you don't think those guys? Be like, I wish it was seven seventy five. Make a little bit more money for my two weeks in the big leagues. And so I, I do think that's what guys look at and say, you know. It's not just calling the guy up in August to say, hey, I need you on the roster for a month while this guy gets healthy. If you're on a minimum deal coming up out of the minor leagues, that's what you're getting. 615, 1 divided by 162. So 1, 162nd, every single day you're on the roster uh, out of that 615 is what you're going to get. And I think, that's, uh, I think that's what they're wanting to see is guys like that when they get to the big leagues, get compensated and get compensated in a big way for, again, minor league baseball. They've done a lot to reform that, so guys get paid a little more, have a little better standard of living, uh, and I think now they're trying to work to make sure that continues at the big league level. And, again, I to, to me, I don't mind the minimum going up. I wish there was more of a rule in place like Major League Baseball, like, like the NFL has. I don't, I don't care about a salary cap, but I do think if you're going to own a Major League franchise, there should be a minimum threshold with which you have to put out there to field a competitive team, right? I, I don't think we can be giving, uh, you know, Max Scherzer $40 million and, and guys like that uh, $40, 50000000 million, and there are franchises that won't spend that much on 26 players. Like that, you don't have a competitive... Think about this. Let's put it in NFL terms. Let's say the Kansas City Chiefs spent $200 million. Uh, on, or let's say they, they gave Patrick Mahomes $50 million, which they may be getting close to doing anyway. Pat Mahomes makes $50 million. And the Jacksonville Jaguars' entire 50-man roster gets paid $60 million. You don't have a competitive league at that point, right? I mean, you, you, you just don't. Uh, so I, I think that's what you're seeing in Major League Baseball. We saw the Orioles lost 115-some-odd games. Well, they had the lowest payroll in baseball. They weren't trying financially to go out and compete and win ball games. And I think if I'm baseball, I'd say, look, let's pay the mid-level guys. And the way we do that is make some of these teams quit being on the cheap and have a minimum that you need to spend. I'm not saying you got to spend 180 million dollars and be like the Yankees and Red Sox, but you can't spend 30. No, it's a good so, point. I, it's a good point. There are complex issues where there are a lot of details to address. But I'm asking you this: going back to kind of the we're two weeks away from spring training talk, there is a timeline here, given mm-hmm. that there is not a current agreement, and right? you are at least getting into the you know time of the year where folks start thinking about baseball and looking ahead to opening day. Is there pressure to have whatever needs to be done done by opening day, and how dramatic is that pressure? Yes, there's pressure. I think the question is, do the people in the room realize that and feel that? Did they feel it during COVID when everybody's like, just go play? There's no sports? You're missing an opportunity to put your, your, your product out there when nobody else is playing, and people are being told they're not essential, they need to stay at home, and y'all can't figure out how to work for 60 days? Uh, in an environment to get it done. Like, I think some of that may have subsided from that extreme scenario, but I do think there's a lot of people that would be like, look, there's a lot going on, man. you got to figure this out. And because you don't feel the pressure, don't think that there's not pressure for uh, for every lost day that's out there for, for the game. And, and, and again, because people, especially in today's day and age, they're very fickle. Hey, any day that I'm not there to be put in the news or in front of somebody is a day they can look to do something else, right? Any, any day that what is that's the whole point of like social media and influence. Like, hey, I want you to come back and view my content day after day. Well, if you stop doing it, well, I'll just go find somebody else. If you stop putting out 
a product. I mean, diehard baseball fans will love you, but casual fans will say, well, oh, what's this? What's this going on over here? I got, kind of got into that now. I kind of got into that. And you have to win them back all over again. And that's not something I think you want to have to constantly keep doing at the end of the day. We got more to come here on 3 and Out. Kylie McDaniel will join us in the final hour. ESPN Baseball Insider will get the latest from him on that. Also, Mike Hollis, former pro bowler for the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, former kicker. He will join us in about 20 minutes here on the show after three of the four games came down to the leg of those very field goal kickers. It is three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. <laughs> it is three and out. Glad you're with us on this <laughs> this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, NFL playoffs down to four. Then there were four uh, left remaining after just a, a wild playoff weekend. And I know you guys touched on it a lot yesterday with all four games coming down to the last play uh, of the ball game. Three of those off the uh, the legs of uh, the kicker. And we'll talk to Mike Hollis, former Jags Pro Bowl kicker, about that coming up in, uh, in just a little bit. But uh, certainly every team but one lost at home uh, as well. Only the... The Chiefs were able to survive, and that just barely uh, at the end of the day. So you look at the four teams left, maybe you say we have three of the four are the most unlikely to be there after Brady and Aaron Rodgers go by the wayside. So how do you view these teams that are left in this playoffs? In terms of favorites? Yeah, in terms of like just yeah. how do you kind of power rank what's left? Because no, three of these teams, certainly I don't think anybody saw the Bengals still lasting around. The Rams, people were saying, okay, Matt Stafford, can he win a playoff game? Okay, he did, but now he's got to go through the GOAT. Uh, can they do it? And they almost didn't. They almost uh, choked that one away. Uh, the 49ers going in sub-zero uh, you know, Lambeau Field, that just doesn't happen. And yet here they still are. I think for me it lines up pretty easily. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to go this way. I, I, I don't know if we were going to address last week, but I went 0 for oh, 4 on my playoff picks. I went 0 for 4. Uh, and and look, and in some ways I'm kind of proud of that because you have to try to do that. But I think for me, Kansas City, uh, you know, the number one team, listen, where's the weakness? If you want to say relative weaknesses defensively, we still have Tyron Matthew and Chris Jones. And, I mean, you still have just guys that can wreck games. And Matthew, remember, missed the vast majority of that game over the weekend as he had uh, the concussion protocol uh, he entered early in the game. So I think Kansas City, uh, I would go L.A. too. I, I think even though... Not long ago, we were talking about Matt Stafford trying to win that first playoff game. This is still a loaded roster. I mean, in terms of just how many guys are all pros, pro bowlers, this might be the best roster in the league. When you look at where, where, what unit has a question mark? I mean, there's a star at every single unit on the field. I mean, defensively, it's, it, it's ridiculous. Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Jalen Ram. I mean, it's absurd. And then you're talking about Cooper Cup just have one of the best seasons ever uh, a great offensive line Matt Stafford Odell I mean it's it's ridiculous three I'll go Cincinnati I do think this team continues to impress each week and kind of show you a little more about who they are and what they're capable of I don't know how you doubt Joe Burrow at this point I mean we keep doing it and he keeps looking and laughing and saying okay what's next uh, not only why not us it is us and they're and they're living up to it and then San Francisco I'll, I'll put four, but they've they've earned where they are. I mean, you go to Lambeau and you have that performance. I do wonder, in terms of compared to the other teams, right? Like, if you talk about the Chiefs, everybody knows the playmakers. You talk about the Bengals, even. Everybody knows Burrow and Chase. And uh, if, if you talk about the Rams, there are countless stars. Can the average football fan name three or four players for the 49ers? I mean, I, 
you know about Jimmy G. Debo, right? But I mean, outside of that, but but this this coaching staff has done an incredible job. Uh, Shanahan, D'Amico Ryan's remarkable job at defensive coordinator. Uh, So I'll go. I'll go Bengals. Or excuse me, I'll go Chiefs, Rams, Bengals, Forty Niners. Wow, man. I mean, when you think about these, the, the four teams left, I, I mean, BJ, I mean, everything you said about, you know, Kansas City is Kansas City. They're the usual suspect. Four years, four, you know, the last four years, they've been uh, representing the AFC in the AFC Championship game, so I'm not going to pick anybody over there. My number two, though, is Cincinnati. Because the thing about it is sometimes – it's good when you are overachiever early in your life because you don't take on you don't take on the woes of what Cincinnati used to be. Joe Burrow, like, look, man, I don't want to hear about what they haven't done. We didn't we win the, the only playoff game on the road ever in the history of Cincinnati? Okay, then we go on the road against the number one seed uh, Titans, nine sacks given up, and we still win. Same Joe Burrow. Last time we saw him in college, which went undefeated. You know, number one overall pick. So I think the thing about Cincinnati is they expected to be here. They said a year removed from Joe Burrow being hurt, Jamar Chase and Higgins and mixing those guys, those guys are getting it done. Now, my number three, though, is the Rams. My goodness. I think sometimes, I think sometimes when you when you when you put a guy like Odell, who people thought he was done in Cle- uh, Cleveland, put a guy like Matthew Stafford, got him up out of the, you know, the motor city, and, you know, I got him out there, you know, to the city of angels. You see what happens when you put a and then you talk about Von Miller. Now, I don't think Von Miller got that much left in the tank, but he showed you what can happen in, in key moments because he made some key plays. Odell Beckham Jr. had the be- he graded out the best out of all the wide receivers uh, in last week's game. You still got Jalen Rams, you still got Aaron Donald, you know, you got guys like Sony Michelle. So I do uh go with those rounds number three. And obviously San Francisco, they have to do more with less. Jimmy Garoppolo to me is the worst quarterback left in the left in these uh in these playoffs. Now that's the. I mean, he. I mean, he's four. Uh, he's four out of four. But I just or number four of four, or whatever. But when you think about the fact that BJ Kevin, he's been here before, and he's trying to. He's trying to be able to say, look, I'm not going to be a 49er moving forward. Y'all giving me way more time and way more money than you probably should. But I want to. I want to get back to. And, and could it be the rematch of? You know, oh my God, what if he does it against the same team? He you know couldn't do it against the first time Kansas City. But I do think that. The most dangerous team left to me is Cincinnati. Because B.J. Kevin, y'all know, every time we see him, we like, Cincinnati? AFC Championship game? Second-year quarterback? First-year wide receiver? T. Higgins in his second year? It's like, what is going on? And, B.J., you said I can't name no players. I know you was doing it before the show. If Cincinnati whole defense was walking through the mall of Cincinnati, they'd be like, what you guys doing? You got a band or something? What y'all group? Y'all kind of big? Because <laughs> they don't know who they are. But to me, that's what makes teams good, right? Well, like, and and I will say this: There's something to say about a guy like uh, Matthew Stafford when every when uh, when everything was on him in Detroit. Now he's in L.A. Do anybody know Matthew Stafford in L.A. for real? No, nope. that go LeBron walking right there, right? That go Carmelo. I mean, don't nobody know. They were like, who is that? Guy? That's Matthew Stafford. He plays with the Rams. Who is that? They 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 find a way to get it done, and they're trying to be able to hold it. So yes, I'm gonna say Kansas City, Cincinnati, them Rams, and the 49ers. But shout out to D'Amico Ryan's who was doing. About as good a job as you you held what Aaron Rodgers, you know, I mean to what to under twenty points and you got that dub. So shout out to the Miko Ryan's, but shout out to them Cincinnati boys for try, trying to start a new tradition up there in Cincinnati. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all all plays out. I think most people would put the Chiefs as a pretty nice favorite uh, here. The I mean, again, it could be a nice showdown with, uh, with with Joe Burrow this weekend, but I would imagine no matter who they line up against, the Chiefs would be the favorite. To win it out, I mean, you have Brady out, Rodgers out, 
uh, the Tennessee Titans, who were perceived at least to be the number one seed, out. I mean, it kind of opened the way up for, for for Pat Mahomes. Would that would that be a knock against him if he can't go through and get to the Super Bowl and win it here, given some of the big big dogs, if you will, that have been knocked out of the way for the Kansas City Chiefs? Yeah, I mean, I think that'd probably be unfair. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. Hey, you have a chance with two wins to have another title, and there's no Brady, there's no Rodgers, but you have to give great teams still left. Uh, Cincinnati, if, 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 if you're criticizing Cincinnati – your only criticism can be from the history of the organization. I mean, this mm-hmm. team just went to the number one seed, fresh off a bye with their star player back, and won. So I think Pat Mahomes knows he's got to earn it. I think in terms of you know favorites, what would the line be? I think a, a Kansas City-L.A. line, especially with the Super Bowl being in L.A. Stadium, would be pretty close, just the star power all over the field. But, yes, I agree. I think we all agree the Chiefs, at this point, the favorites. At the end of the day, I'm very, very, I'm very, very, very impressed with the last four teams standing because I mean the thing about the Chiefs is, I mean, BJ and Kevin, y'all know as soon as the Chiefs show any sign of weakness, people are like, oh, here go the Chiefs, they are not, you know, they ain't got it this year. No, you got Patrick Mahomes, you got Travis Kelsey, you got Tyreek Hill. I mean, you got, you know, you got a bunch of guys. The thing about Cincinnati, though, I was like, Joe, Joe Burrow's mentality is starting to resonate throughout the team. I mean, Jamar Chase is the only rookie in NFL history to have back-to-back 100 receiving, rece- 100 receiving uh, game, 100 yard receiving games uh, in the playoffs. Everybody got their own built-in storylines. I mean, Matthew Stafford, new a new face in a new place. Here we are, NFC Championship game. Jalen Ramsey get a chance. I remember Jalen Ramsey. BJ was a part. You know, he did everything he could to get up out of Jacksonville, and it seems to be working. Von Miller getting traded halfway during the season, but then you talk about San Francisco. Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch. Jimmy Garoppolo, Debo, George Kittle. I'm just, I mean, uh, I, I, just, I just think that sometimes, you know, we, we, we write teams off. We will see what happens, but I do think the party crashes are them Cincinnati, them, them nasty natty boys. Shout out to my homie Deshaun <laughs> Wayne. I mean, you know, I know Cincinnati boy, they call it the nasty natty. You know, it's the nasty Nash, Deshaun. I had to tell you that when we play. But, no, I, I, I'm looking forward to it, BJ. But this is the thing. Josh Allen showed what happened when you got a good quarterback. Joe Burrow. Can he put up those type of numbers against Kansas City, especially if they down Tyron Matthew? Mm, it might be a good one. Going to be interesting to watch, uh, certainly coming up this weekend. We've got more to come. Mike Hollis, former Jacksonville Jaguar Pro Bowl kicker, will join us when we return here on 3 and Out, Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you along here, 3 and Out, on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, NFL playoffs, and then they were four, but a wild weekend of NFL football for you this past weekend, all coming down to the last play. Three kickers sending their teams on. Uh, to the next round, and joining us here on the program, former Pro Bowler, uh, Jaguars kicker, the original Jaguars kicker, Mike Hollis, joining us here on 3 and Out. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How you guys been? Doing fantastic. And uh, you get in those, those situations over the weekend where so much is made about offense, offense, offense. I know when what the, the early game Saturday was a lot of field goals being kicked back and forth, and ultimately three of the four games come down to uh, putting your faith in the guy kicking the football uh, What's it like knowing, hey, the, the team, because at the start of those drives, obviously the goal is, hey, get us a field goal range, and we're going to lock this thing up and go to the next round. Well, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's part of the game. Special teams is a third of, of the game itself. You know, you don't hear a lot about special teams, but we typically uh, score the most points. <laughs> you know, I led the league in, in the, I led the whole NFL in scoring in uh, 1997, and, um, you know, I kicked a lot of field goals that year, of course, and, and helped my team win win a lot of games. So, you know, it's uh, you know when you're in that situation as a as a kicker, the the trick is really not to 
put any more pressure on yourself. Um, as a kicker, your your job is really literally the same. I mean, the intensity has stepped up. And, you know, the, the the other players on the field they're running probably a little faster, or hard. You know, pushing it a little harder. You know, they're 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 100. percent They're they're pushing the limits a little bit more than they would normally. Um, just that's just the playoff atmosphere. But for a kicker, it's it's the same. We want to actually be more relaxed. We want to take less pressure or take more pressure off of ourselves and just kind of. Um, you know, do do the same things we've been doing. Um, there's no reason to change a thing at all as, as a kicker. You talk about that, that that third aspect of the game, special teams. It seems like once you get into the playoffs or when you're in a big game, special teams matters even more, whether it was the kicks and uh, someone like Evan McPherson for Cincinnati basically scoring all the team's points or San Francisco with the blocks. Does, does special teams have a way of mattering even more uh, when there's more on the line? You know, I, I, I think I think so. I think that um, you know, when it comes to the playoff atmosphere, um, you know, the the X's and O's with regards to offensive defense and what they're what they're coming up with as far as a game plan, um, they might you know amplify a little bit as well. But special teams is where every team's looking for an advantage, and so if they can find an advantage somewhere uh, in special teams or, or you know the, the, that that the, the typical thing is that you know teams don't spend too much time on special teams, so let's just try to take advantage of. Of you know certain players or so that that aren't really starters or they're guys that are on the team but they're on the team just for special teams but um, it, it is a it is a mindset where you're you're always trying to you know out scheme the other team and and in special teams they take advantage of certain situations they see on film and you know obviously every every play counts and special teams does step up in the playoffs and I'm I'm glad these kickers are doing so well and in, in winning games because it, it puts more importance on on that that aspect of the game. Mike, when you think about your approach to the game in general, like the game is going on all the time. Obviously, you're looking at down the distance and seeing if they are in field goal range. How does your routine, whether it's postseason or regular season, kind of remain the same? Because you always have to be on the sideline getting warmed up. What is your routine and how do you keep your, I guess, like uh, the pressure of the game kind of at ease? That way it doesn't get too high and too low for you. Well, like you said, I, I, you, you change nothing. And, and, again, with regard to the pressure that you just mentioned, you change nothing. <laughs> you know, every kick is important, and um, if you, if you make it any kick any more important than the the last one or the first one of the game or whichever kick you're kicking, because they're all the same, you as a kicker have to treat it as the same. You can't you can't think about what it's going to do as far as the outcome of the game, because the last kick is just important as the first kick, because the first kick you made in that in that game, the first field goal that you kicked had a lot to do with where you are right now at the end of the game, kicking the game-winning kick. So they're all important. It's really up to the kicker to kind of simplify the process and more or less dumb it down and take a lot of pressure off himself just doing the same routine. Just don't don't think about the consequences, in other words. Just do what you've done a million times over and over again. And, Mike, you talk about that. We're talking with Mike Hollis, former Jacksonville Jaguars place kicker. You talk about don't think about the consequences. A couple of these guys had to trot out there. I think the Green Bay game, it was snowing uh, with the game online. You obviously used to kick it in Jacksonville. How much does that change your approach when the ground's hard, it's snowing? Uh, what, what is that kind of mindset like? I know you try to make it the same, but it's not every day there's a, you know, a snowstorm happening while you're trying to kick your team to the next round. That that is a true point. <laughs> um, the the biggest thing for for me, you know, that as 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 a as a kicker kicks a ball in cold weather situations, you just know as a kicker the ball's not going to travel as far as it typically would if it was a lot warmer. And you know, the balls typically fly in warmer climates. Well, you know that that's one thing. So you, you know, there's a limit to how far maybe you can kick that specific day in the snow. 
Um, the biggest concern for me as a kicker would be the footing. I, I've played on, on, on fields where part of the field, you know, has, has kind of, well, they say the whole field had a, had a heating system and, and the snow and the, and the ice would never form, but there, there are parts on the field that are more frozen or frozen and other parts that are not. So if you get that unlucky spot on the, on the, the last play before you start trotting out in the field for the field goal, and you, you're putting your foot down, showing you know, your holder where you want the ball, and you notice the ground is frozen when it wasn't supposed to be, then you got issues. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the field surface, um, the, the footing is the biggest you know, concern for kickers, I would think. We know that the ball is just not going to travel as far. you just got to hit it solid, make it, you know, make it a good contact ball, and uh, hope it goes through, obviously. But the footing is something that uh, would, would scare a lot of kickers if you're, not, you know, if you're thrown for a for a, a surprise when, when the ground's actually frozen and you weren't really ready for it. A quarterback can throw an interception, still have a great game. A wide receiver can drop a couple of passes, still have a great game. A defensive player can miss a tackle, still have a great game. It, it, it feels like uh, for, for kickers, at least from the outside looking in, the expectation is perfection. How do you, how do you operate in an environment where, where that is seemingly the standard? Well, that's the, just the nature of the position. You know, somebody's got to do it. Um, you know, that, that's the thing is, you know, you work hard week in and week out, and you prepare, you know, for, you know, games and situations and, you know, opportunities to kick the football and, you know, do your job. Um, the, the times when, you know, you got to realize that, that that field goal operation is, is 1.3 seconds or less or somewhere around there. That, that's very quick. And plus you also have, you know, the snapper and the holder, Obviously, you're kicking a ball that, that's held by the holder. But if those guys are off or something's off within that one point, you know, three seconds, you know, you have to adjust sometimes. And it's just a matter of, of, of improvising if you have to and just being a professional about the situation and, and just, you know, just hoping for a normal routine. And, and um, you know, it, it is a, the, the expectation level for kickers, especially in the NFL at that level, especially these days in the NFL, you know, those guys are expected to make 100% of their kicks. Clearly, we know that that's not always going to happen, but you as a kicker, that's your goal is to be 100% every game, you know, each week. And, you know, sometimes things happen and it just doesn't work out real well. And um, you just move on and you learn from, you know, the situations and just do the best you can. And if you're showing your teammates that you're working hard and, and, and you are, you know, showing a lot of effort and, and doing a lot of things for your team, you know, they respect you, you know, miss, make or miss. You know, they still they still love you as a, as a teammate and, you um, you know, hopefully they won't uh, treat you too bad after you, after a, a miss. Um, but, yeah, they're all important. And, you know, so, like I said, somebody's got to do it. Micah, Evan, Money, McPherson, rookie kicker for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, told uh, Joe Burrow, you know, before the kick, listen, I guess we're going to the AFC Championship game. And, obviously, he was able to go out there and make that kick. To know that, you know, a kicker that young is having that much success, how much is it confidence? Like you say, you don't make the, the, the last kick bigger than the first, but how much is building confidence for a kicker just like any other player uh, extremely important as far as, like, your success throughout your career? Well, you know, I, 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 I think every kicker is a little different. Um, he's clearly very confident. He's had an incredible season, and I, I see a lot of good things happening from, from that uh, young man. Uh, he's very, very mature for his age, and um, you know he he can he can say those kind of things and then go out there and perform. I wasn't as bold as that, um, you know. It, it, it works for some kickers, and uh, it did not work for me. Um, I I would never try to be overconfident because if I miss a kick, then that's fairly embarrassing, and you know that's that's not uh, that's not a good thing to to happen. So you know, I I just um, you know some some guys they just they have it, um, and, and some guys don't, but. I was more of a mellow guy, just relax and just, you know, don't, don't get too, 
you know, obviously over you know, if you think ahead or too 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 far ahead of what your situation is, uh, sometimes you can get a little complacent and and and, and not perform well. Um, that was my mindset at least. I just really wanted to focus on every kick at a time, and you know, I didn't really want to talk a whole lot before a kick. I wanted to focus on my kick and not have a conversation with anybody. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of me, but. Uh, every kicker is different, and, and clearly is working for him. So I, I applaud his performance last weekend, um, and I look forward to seeing him kick uh, a lot more, you know, great field goals for that Cincinnati Bagel team. Uh, Mike Hollis joining us here on Three and Out. Mike, kind of take us in and, and how involved you are with what the team strategy is in a ball game. And I'll, I'll point this out specifically. Obviously, Tampa Bay goes in and scores with forty second, forty six seconds left. Uh, kicks the ball off, and a lot of people in the stadium go, "Okay." We're playing for overtime. All of a sudden, the Rams hit a big play. It's like, oh, they're going for this thing. They're trying to kick a field goal. Are you as a kicker in, they're playing for overtime? Or do you know before they even take the field, hey, we're going to try to make it happen. Be ready. I, I, never really, I was never really told anything. I just I had always, you know, you always have to prepare for an opportunity to step on the field. Anytime your team has the ball, your offense is on the field, you have to know that there is a good chance that you might have to go out there and kick a field goal and, you know that the the worst thing you can do as a kicker is, is be surprised. Um, you know, especially like on, a, on on pick sixes or or something. Knowing that when your 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 team your defense you know picks off a pass and they score a touchdown, especially these days when you're kicking uh, an extra point from 33 yards, it's like oh crap! I'm I haven't had a chance to warm up. I'm just like I better just go ahead and wing it. You know, sort of thing. So um, I, I would never want to be surprised in a sense where you know I, I just didn't you know expect us to kick a field goal. Um, always be ready, in other words, and that's just kind of the, the name of the game as a kicker. Yeah, we saw three of them called on in a big, big moment to move their teams on to the next round. Mike, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Mike Hollis uh, joining us here, the original Jaguars place kicker, pro bowler. I appreciate him joining us. And, uh, Ben, I know people say uh, kind of the joke, oh, it's the lonely kicker over there. It's like, we love you when we need you, but, uh, you know, Talk about that, that that dynamic of everybody in Tampa Bay thought, hey, we're playing for overtime, and then in the span of just a few seconds, we're going to kick the game winner. There are skill positions and there are specialty positions. I mean, I played a skill position when it came to the National Football League of football in general. There are only three guys that you need. Punters, kickers, <laughs> long snappers. Let one of those guys get hurt, and, and chaos <laughs> will ensue on those yeah, sidelines. We've got more to come. Three and out here on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. It is three and out on this Tuesday. We'll take three coming up next hour. Also, we should have uh, the the very latest. We'll know who's going into the Baseball Hall of Fame this afternoon as well. And, and a couple of big names be leaving the National Football League. Sean Payton, Tom Brady, where do they stand? And uh, their future with the National Football League. We'll get to that coming up in hour number two. Also, uh, coming up this weekend, Champions Parade. Coming up Sunday in Blackshear. Going to be honoring Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett. And his national championship uh, win there with the Georgia Bulldogs, also honoring the 2020 state championship football team, who I think didn't have a celebration due to COVID and some of those things that happened uh, during that 2020 season. So Champions Weekend, uh, Champions Parade there Sunday in Blackshear. I know a lot of Georgia fans, Pierce County folks, obviously, uh, but a lot of Georgia fans going to be on hand there as well, honoring uh, hometown hero Stetson Bennett as uh, he goes through uh, the uh, the championship uh, for the Champions Parade there on Sunday. Yeah, it should be very cool. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And uh, Stetson Bennett, I, we've we've heard multiple people say we'll never have to buy a meal or, or buy a drink, I, especially in Blackshear. Legend, le- legend everywhere. Yes. But coming home, that'll be special. 
At the end of the day, I mean, listen, shout out, shout out to every them, them Pierce County boys. I mean, you talk about Stetson Man, it couldn't have happened to a to a better dude. BJ, I mean, you finally get to meet your cousin in yep. person. I mean, your cousin in person. I'm looking forward to that. And he's on the list. A list oh, of two people. He is on the list. He's on the list. There's only has two people on it. Hour two next. Good to have you back here. Three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kevin BJ and Ben. Glad you're making us a part of your day. Plenty to get to this hour. Look at some of the Potential big departures from the National Football League. Sean Payton, Tom Brady, uh, potentially. Uh, we'll get to that coming up in just a little bit. We'll also know the very latest on the Baseball Hall of Fame voting. Is that 2022 class should be announced right now, this afternoon. So we'll get you the very latest on that as well. Just keep in mind, Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Baseball Insider, will join us coming up in the final hour of the program. And we'll get the very latest on the baseball labor talks with at least pitchers and catchers report dates scheduled for about two weeks uh, from now. So a lot to get accomplished if they're not going to miss anything here in 2022. But that being said, let's take three here on three and out. All right, fellas, take one. Sean Payton saying he is leaving the Saints. Is it inevitable he's going to Dallas? Kind of feels like it, right? Former assistant coach for the Cowboys, Texas uh, native, and after the, the early loss, uh, in the playoffs, you had Jerry Jones come out again and say, you know, something along the lines of our expectation is only winning a championship and we're going to do whatever it takes and we have to invest. And kind of kind of feels like timing that would make sense, right? And uh, Dallas is desperate to have that postseason success. Dallas is willing to pay to have that postseason success. And I would imagine if you're going to get uh, – uh, Coach Payton to leave New Orleans and potentially come to Dallas, that would be, I would guess that would be the largest contract in coaching history. It would be my guess. And certainly Jerry Jones can do that. Um, you never know. I know this just broke, what, right before the start of the show a couple of hours ago. But speculation with social media all over the place that at some point Sean Payton's going to end up with the Dallas Cowboys. So given all of that conjecture and talk, I mean, yeah, I think it seems reasonable to to think that – that's a possibility, yes. Sean Payton has already been uh, been on the uh, Dallas Cowboys staff. I think he was on the staff uh, under uh, Coach Bill Parcells. When you think about it, when you think about a guy like Jerry Jones, he wants to be able to have a big-name coach that already has a Super Bowl. Mike McCartney only got the job because he had won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. The thing about a guy like Sean Payton is, Sean Payton knows, look, in order for me to be successful, I have to have a top-tier quarterback. I do think Dak Prescott is a top-ten quarterback. I think he has the weapons. We can talk about Zeke. We can talk about CeeDee Lamb. You know, we can talk about, you know, guys like Amari Cooper. We can talk about that defense. And, BJ, you mentioned the money. I mean, he's gonna get he's gonna get the money. He's earned it. He's one of the best coaches in college. I mean, one of the best coaches in the National Football League. Yes, I think you could book it. Mike McCarthy was was like a short term fix. I do think Sean Payton uh, is gonna be a, gonna be the head coach of Dallas uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, it could be interesting. Uh, again, do you sit out a season and wait it out? How much could change in the course of a year? I mean, if the Cowboys make the playoffs and actually win a game, do you? I mean, do you fire the coach to go get Sean Payton? Be interesting to see how it happens there uh, as as we move forward. Take two. Tom Brady is a free agent, talking a lot about taking time with his kids and see what his family wants to do, and not talking as matter of fact like, "Hey, I'm going to play till I'm 50." If he was interested, would you bench Mac Jones and re-sign Tom Brady? If you are the New England Patriots, of course. Like, of 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 course. What kind of question is that? You're talking about the greatest quarterback of all time, and. He just won the Super Bowl last season, and this season 
He led the league in passing yards and passing touchdowns. You can be very excited about Mac Jones. Mac had a great year. I think Mac is clearly the quarterback of the future, and barring Brady wanting to come back, he's the quarterback of the nail. But if Tom Brady wants to come back to Foxborough, you're going to say, no, nah, man, we got a guy that just had a good rookie season. No! You're going to bring – this is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But but you're going to bring back Tom Brady and see what happens. There's no, There are no guarantees. It wouldn't nope. be a guarantee you would win a Super Bowl. But in the last two years, Tom Brady has led the league in passing and touchdowns and won the Super Bowl. So to have that guy come back and then all the – you know, all the PR and just the excitement and the tickets and the, yes, of course, of course. No, you don't do that. And this is why you don't do that. At the end of the day, Tom Brady made the decision when he said, look, I'm going to move on. Uh, I'm going to move on uh, from the New England Patriots. I'm going to go on to the uh, to the NFC with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he's more to supersede expectations. Now, BJ, you're talking about, yeah, hey, Mac, listen, I know we drafted you in the first round. I think you're the one, the f- only first-round quarterbacks I can remember uh, New, England, uh, New England drafted in a long time. I know you had an incredible rookie season, got us back to the playoffs. But we're gonna, but, but Tom's How'd that back. go? Well, well, BJ, well, here's the thought. That was one of 14 teams to to uh, to make the uh, the playoffs. A lot of teams cannot say that. No, you don't bring back number one. Bill Belichick gonna say, "Listen, that's why I draw a line in the sand." Robert, and I'm talking about Robert Kraft. It's either me or Tom Brady, and I, and I think Robert Kraft gonna say, "Okay, Tom, man, we love you and everything." And BJ, you say it's gonna be great for the PR team. No, that PR team is not gonna be able to go home because they're gonna be like, "Dude, we got these people flooding us with all these." No. Okay, it would be it would be a great story, but no, that would be bad for Mac. Tom Brady, look, you've been in the league for forty five years. Give somebody else a chance. Go home. Go spend time with your family. Go spend time with your wife. Jesus. Yeah, I think honestly, yeah, I I tend to agree with Ben. I don't think you can go home. The reunion will not be as awesome as the original. All right, and you are, and again, I'm saying he just had a great year, but again, what is what is New England? Are they trying to build a championship for Tom Brady? Or are they trying to build a championship to win with Mac Jones? You told me. Uh-oh. You've told me mm-hmm. that at every position in the NFL, yeah. regardless of who you have, mm-hmm. you're trying to get better players. You are. Doesn't matter if you were a first round pick. Yep. So is Tom Brady better than Mac Jones right now? Well, yes. Well, there you go. Whoa. Well, so 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 we're talking about reunions. So so I mean, I'm sorry. Is Shia Khan is, is he calling up Blake Bortles? I mean, he took y'all to the AFC Championship. You know what? That's the perfect parallel. I was trying to think of something that would be like Tom Brady no, no, coming no, no, back to Foxborough. No, no, Blake Bortles no, coming no, no, back no, no, to Jacksonville. No, 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 no. Blake Bortles took y'all to the AFC Championship game, didn't he? Is that the same as winning six Super Bowls? Would he with give the you city? a better quarterback than you had this year? No. <laughs> so Blake Bortles wouldn't give wouldn't give you better than Trevor gave you this year? I would year? take well, look at what look at what Trevor was working with. At Whoa, times. this is the same BJ was saying LaVisca Chenault. I'm talking about DJ, DJ Shark. Shark out for the year. Travis Etienne out for the year. So, so, so you give you give everybody if all, if everybody's healthy, that's how you're gonna judge uh, Trevor Lawrence. Yes, Blake Bortles. When's the last time he played in the National Football League? Because I, I know he, I know he did. I know he went to the AFC. So you're Champions saying game. that there's a there's a comparability between Tom Brady, who nope. just led the league in passing, oh. and Blake Bortles, who I'm last about played. Right, but when's the last time Blake Bortles played? I mean, he played like two or three years ago. Is all right? Yeah. But y'all, we two or three years removed from when you wearing all Jacksonville stuff every day. Oh, I still got it. Oh, we, oh, we know you still got it. You know, waiting for Travis to get healthy. So when, Tra- so when Travis E.T. gets healthy, <laughs> you're gonna break out all the Jacksonville yeah, stuff. He's waiting for the wheels on the bandwagon to get fixed. <laughs> oh yeah, you're, you're right. Because oh, oh, yeah. so being a Jaguars whoa, whoa, fan the last whoa, whoa, twoa, twenty years, whoa, 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 you're a real whoa, whoa, whoa. part of the bandwagon. Do you want to go out and get Gardner Minshew back? Well, Gardner was balling. I still think I still think he he can be a starting quarterback in the league. Do, do you want to start for your team, though? No. Oh, how how, how quickly things change. Because I was guarding, guarding, guarding. Why would you get rid of him? And that's what I'm saying. You can love Mac Jones. But if Tom Brady's available. So so what you're saying is you don't want a guy to drive around and win a bagels, you know, begging for food and gas. You want a guy that has the long locks. 
Number one overall pick. Trevor's the future. Oh, here, see, there go. What if Tom Brady wanted to come to Jacksonville? Yes. <laughs> what kind of question is that? Well, we don't have to worry about that. Don't say no. We're good. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like Trevor, we love you. Tom's in the building. Uh, Trevor, if Tom we'll Brady wants you. to come to Jacksonville, Trevor can be the backup for a year. What, what, what if we want to sign him on to your deal? Well, a couple years. I mean, you told me that part of being in the NFL is you realize that every single year, at every position, the job uh-huh. of the front office mm-hmm. is to get the best player possible. And you told that, me there and, is no and, and all I'm proving to the listeners is this is what the front office does. You go over and say, man, I love Trevor Lawrence. Tom Brady's on line too. Trevor, can I call you back? What's up, Tom? What's up, baby? Does it not happen with we, every team every year? Serious? Listen, we're going to send you the real private jet, not that crop dust that we went and got Trevor Lawrence on. We're going to send you that real thing, the brand new one. Child come we'll pick you up. Tom Brady to the Jags. I, that, that ain't happening. We've got uh, one more to go. Take three here. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic recently reported that the Braves discussed a trade with the A's for uh, first baseman Matt Olson. This was before the lockout, and Ken Rosenthal said, quote, the conversations cannot be dismissed as mere due diligence. Do you think the Braves are the favorite still to re-sign Freddie Freeman? I have my doubts, uh, and and I told you guys back when the season was coming to a close that you've had – it's not like all of a sudden you were you were managing the baseball organization and then all of a sudden you went, oh, some alarm went off, and it went, Freddie Freeman is now a free agent. You knew it was coming. Like, this has been on the horizon, and it hadn't been addressed. You, you, you had not reached an agreement. I think, Ben, you've told me this too. Anytime it goes to free agency, anything can happen. I mean, that's kind of the nature of free agency. And – Historically, the Braves have not been the team to negotiate a similar contract to what the Yankees, you know, the Dodgers, the Cubs can offer. I think Freddie Freeman probably feels like he can get whatever he wants, essentially, on the open market, especially if there's interest from teams like the Yankees or, or teams uh, like like the I think the the, uh, the uh, Angels maybe have been mentioned. Some other teams. Uh, I I don't think the Braves can get into a contract negotiation with those sides, and the fact that this was not reached, meaning a new agreement, until we've reached a point where the season is potentially a couple of months away, I, I, I think in some ways that, that that gives you some clues that they've they've not been on the same page. Uh, and, and the Braves had, I guess, an offer that was not what Freddie Freeman wanted. Uh, I, 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 I don't feel good about it, no. I do think uh, the Braves are still in the driver's seat to get to land Freddie Freeman. I think sometimes people don't understand what negotiations are. I mean, it's something we talked about earlier. Yes, we talked about when we started the show, when you, when, you, when the the players give an offer and then the uh, owners uh, give a counteroffer. It's not so much the Braves and uh, Freddie Freeman are so far off. We talk about the numbers. I mean, it's not Ellis Anthopoulos' fault. He, he can only, he can only whatever, whatever uh, whoever owns the Braves, I mean, whatever they say that they're going to offer, that's all it's going to be. Now, you – I, I do think the Braves are in the, are in the driver's seat, BJ, because it's something to say about chemistry on the team. It's something to say about having, you know, you know, guys like uh, Ron Lacuna and Isaiah Albers and those guys, maybe a healthy, you know, Mike Fonavich or whatever, you know. I'm, I'm sorry, Mike Mike Soroka. Sorry. You know, Mike Fonavich. Mike, Mike Soroka coming back. I just think that, you know, we hear the number. He wants $180 million, right? It goes back to selling a house. Yeah, man, I want my house to sell for this, right? But that doesn't mean that's what I'm going to get for it. I know that we were, they, they were 30, what, 30 million apart. I guess what I'm getting at is why didn't those negotiations start sooner? 
Well, BJ, I mean, you kind of wait to see how the season ends. And it kind of hurt the Braves because, well, I mean, they obviously the Braves want to win the World Series. They hadn't done it in a while, and then they got it done, and then Freddie Freeman was an integral part of that. So that means that – Hasn't he earned that big deal yeah, because of that? I, yeah, I'm, I, and I'm not saying he hasn't. I'm not saying he hasn't, but, you know, Freddie Freeman, is, it's not arguably, he is the best first baseman in baseball, right? Best first baseman. Uh, you know, Kevin, I, I, I don't want to uh, butcher his name. Uh, the guy that gave uh, the new contract, they gave, they offered, they, they, uh, Freddie Freeman, they offered him like $5 million more than that, right? And it was unheard of uh, when they offered him that money. But, BJ, I'm telling you, it's not disrespect on the Braves' part. Because what do we start saying about these contracts after year one, after year two? See, I mean, you might have gave Freddie Freeman too much because I get it. It has worked. The Freddie Freeman experiment has worked, but the Solaires and the Rosario, the, that kind of stuff helps as well. I just think that when you're trying to give him 180, right? Uh, what's the what's the what's the what's the percentage that you know uh, uh Ronald Cunha gonna uh you know reach the end of his deal? So you give it Freddie 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 Freeman 180. What you gonna have to get? I'm telling you, it's all about the present and the future. You thinking about those things? I do think uh, the Braves are the front runner, and maybe the lockout is giving them more time to you know send out text messages that probably shouldn't be going out to agents. But I mean, 180 million dollars. It's gonna be hard for Freddie Freeman to get. It's gonna be hard for him to get that in Atlanta. I just think that hopefully cooler heads will prevail, and they, they can hopefully try to meet in the middle. Yeah, I, I still think there is a lot of impetus to get to get to get it done because the Braves have no other backup plan if Freddie Freeman goes. I mean, you could say, well, they're going to trade, but I think some of that is to me due diligence because you have you have to play the what if. And as far as why didn't the contract negotiations start earlier, well. Why did Major League but Baseball and the players trade, union not though. start talking until today and yesterday? I mean, Let me ask you this because I don't know how this works. Like, if this is pre the lockout, right? If you explore a a trade, that why would you be doing that for due diligence if there wasn't a desire to act on it? To show that hey, do you really want to be in Atlanta? Because we're thinking we're at least exploring opportunities of moving on, and it's a. I think some of it's still a negotiation tactic. Like, look, hey, oh, we is. want you to be it here. Is. It is. We want you to be here, but we are at the same time. You're looking saying that was that was maybe a sign to the Freeman camp saying we're we're considering. We other want options. you to be here, but if you're going to drive a, a hard hard line, because I think everybody knows Freddie Freeman wants to stay. But if you're going to drive a hard, hard line of maybe more than we want to play, we are exploring other options of other first basemen. I think it's a it's a high-stakes game of poker face and, and chicken involving major league contracts. You may not like to hear it that way, but I think that's what it is because both parties have also openly said we both want to make this work. So what else could it be? You have two parties that want to be there. Somebody's got to flinch and say I'm willing to concede something to get there. I think uh, playing – hey, you don't – you don't think the other way? You don't think the stories of, well, Freddie Freeman's really starting to look at the Yankees. You don't think that was floated? Who do you think floated that out there? To put pressure on the Braves and say, you're really going to let him walk to the Yankees? All that stuff's put out there for a reason at the end of the day. I still feel good about the Braves making it happen with Freddie Freeman at the end of the day. That's take three. We got more to come here. It's three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you here on this Tuesday Kevin, BJ, and Ben, a lot going on around the National Football League, including Sean Payton saying he is stepping away from the New Orleans Saints. Maybe a year sabbatical. Maybe he winds up with the Cowboys, as we talked about there in take three. Tom Brady also apparently mulling retirement and or leaving Tampa Tampa Bay. I guess it would no longer be called Tampa Bay uh, there at that point. But you start looking at it, no Tom Brady, no Sean Payton. 
and what's left in the division. And, and you're talking about a Tampa Bay team that Ben has talked about this is coming up where they won the Super Bowl, lost nobody, not a single player from the Super Bowl team, and now they were deep into, they were into the playoffs again after a very successful regular season, and it's time for people to get paid. Tampa Bay could look drastically different after guys go out and get their cheese. If you're the Atlanta Falcons and you simply don't screw this thing up with a nice free agent class, you have Matt Ryan coming back. If Tom Brady doesn't come back, you've got the most experienced quarterback in the division. Could you be talking about a pretty significant turnaround if you're the Atlanta Falcons? I think, what, uh, three picks in the top 60? Is that correct? Did I have that right? So if you get this thing done smartly, could it be a pretty nice turnaround for Atlanta in, in what could be a pretty weak division in 2022? Yes, and I think we were all uh, looking at the, the uh, Sean Payton news thinking, you know, after you went, wow, Sean Payton stepping away, you thought, okay, well, that leaves a very big question mark for the New Orleans Saints, who already have a very big question mark at quarterback, where Taysom Hill is re-signed, Jameis Winston's a free agent. I, you know, you, I don't know what's going on with that roster. Uh, and then you look at Carolina – not a lot of optimism there. I mean, just just being honest, Sam Darnold, uh, Matt Rule on the hot seat already. I mean, I mean that's not. I don't think you're going to see them projected to make deep playoff runs nope. next year. And you look at Tampa, right now. If Tom Brady comes back, that that's the end of this argument. But there seems to be, if there's a at least a momentum online for whatever that's worth, there seems to be a lot of people implying or suggesting, and there's a good chance he doesn't come back. Now that could be due to retirement. Or that could be due to, hey, I want to go play somewhere else. I don't want to play in Tampa. But if that happens, you already have Gronk's a free agent. You know he's not coming back nope. if, if Brady doesn't. Chris Godwin's a free agent. Uh, you're talking about Leonard Fournette's a free agent. I mean, the Bucks, if they lose Brady, could very easily go into rebuild mode. And if that happens, you have a rebuilding Bucks. You have a, I don't know what's going on with the Saints. And you have a, I really don't know what's going on with the Panthers. Now, I don't think any of us think the Atlanta Falcons have a Super Bowl roster. But to get into the playoffs... Yeah, you just have to be the best team in your division. And if Tom Brady does not come back to Tampa, I think right now Atlanta feels like they're the best team in the division because of the quarterback situation. You would have an unknown essentially in Carolina, an unknown in New Orleans, and an unknown in Tampa. And the Falcons would have Matt Ryan and Kyle Pitts. And, you know, there's still some franchise pieces. Now, you would have to address wide receiver. What are you mm -hmm. doing there? What's happening defensively? Can you get better? But Christian was, we were going through some of the numbers earlier. I think you're going to enter the free agency period with about 10 to $12 million. So you're in a better position now for Terry Fontenot and, and others potentially, uh, or, or for Terry Fontenot to kind of look at some other uh, uh, prospects uh, potentially to bring in via free agency. And you have three of the top 60 picks in the draft. And that's, that's pretty good, including a top 10 pick. And I want to get y'all's thoughts on this. Uh, if you're Terry Fontenot and you're looking, maybe now, are you looking around going, I, I already like the roster. Now mm -hmm. I'm looking around. Do you think the Falcons might be aggressive this offseason in terms of bringing in where maybe it was kind of the slow build before, and now you're looking around the division going, we can we can win this thing. I mean, we we can be the pretty clear favorite if this stuff happens, the pretty clear favorite on, on, on paper in the division. I mean, BJ and Kevin, I mean, I think, but and, well, BJ uh, specifically, I think you just said it. Terry Fontenot, people said, why would he leave New Orleans, man? He done built it up. Terry Fontenot knew what was coming, right? Like, I'm pretty sure the general manager knows kind of what's going on with the whole organization, including the head coach. And he's looking around saying, ooh, Drew Brees is leaving. Jameis Winston ain't the answer. Taysom Hill's an experiment. Trevor Simeon was a, was a you know, was a Band-Aid. And, and 
these Saints in 2022 are in the same position that the, that the Falcons were in 2021. They don't have no money to spend. So now when you think about a guy like Sean Payton moving on, yes, I think it is time for this Falcons team to be aggressive. I mean, I know they're going to have to address uh, certain uh, certain positions in the offseason, I mean, in free agency, as well as, uh, you know, a guy I mean, with the draft. But I do think this is it. I mean, the, the best teams in the division usually have the best quarterback. Well, I mean, Matty Ice is, I mean, far and ahead the best quarterback in this division. We think about he's a he's a regular season MVP. He's been with the same team his whole career. Tampa, BJ, forget rebuild. They may go back to what Tampa was. Like, let's face it, the last two years, Tampa have superseded expectations because of Tom Brady. Because a lot of those guys were on the team before Tom Brady got there. You added Gronk and Leonard Fournette. Mike Evans is a, he's had a thousand yards every season he's been in. Chris Godwin is not going to get re-signed because he's coming off an injury. Vita Vea got a got a contract extension. Uh, I think Adamica Sue. I don't know. I think his uh his uh final years are coming up. Um, you know, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So yes, it's time for Atlanta to say, all right, we got to address him. We got to get a wide receiver. Got to get a running back. Got to re-sign Cordell Patterson. Got to address the defensive line, and maybe we get some secondary help. But even with if you can't beat the Saints without Sean Payton, without Drew Brees, unless the Saints – now, I've heard some rumblings. Now, if Russell Wilson go to New Orleans – Oh, boy. That, that, because he won't – because that's another thing, too. He wants out of out of Seattle. You know he's going to have some uh, heavy suitors. He want to he go to a team that's established. He's got a lot of veterans and obviously in a division that he can win. And he's been in the NFC his whole career, so I don't think he's going to want to change that. But then I still think Carolina – I mean, I don't know what – Matt Rule got against his owner. They gave him like a seven year deal. They're trying to, they don't want it. That buyout is probably serious. So I do think Atlanta got a shot to be, they don't got to be good. They just got to be the best in their division. Yes, they can win that division. Now it's going to be ugly to win it. I like, I, I like that. You don't have to be good. You just have to win the division. Well, what, 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 That's what, the what, AFC South. What, what, yeah, what, what, yeah, what, think, think about, <laughs> it is. It right? is. I mean, the, Titans, the Titans were good. But, but, what, but, what, yeah, but, what, but what I'm saying is, right? But how good did you have to be? Like, like when we, when we be looking at football the wrong way. We look at overall records. That's not what you need to be looking at. It's like bowl games, man. It was only six or seven. Did they get in the bowl game? Yeah. Who cares? The goal is to win your division. You win your division. Guess what? You get to host a playoff game. Doesn't matter what the other team did. So the goal is to win the division. You have to say, where do we need help in? The the the, the Falcons, number one, it's now nah, outside of that, you know, on Thursday night against New England, that was just ugly to watch. The Falcons was in a lot of games this year that they lost. It's not like they just laid an egg in a lot of these games. Tom Brady leaving, Sean Payton leaving, makes his whole division look totally different. Matty Ice is saying, look, I ain't got but one One more, maybe, one more run? Yeah, because we keep on saying this. Hey, man, Matty Ice got about two years. Yeah, we said that two years ago. He got one more than year, BJ, and I'm and I'm sorry. Well, if he gets hit as much as he gets this year, he may well, not that's what I'm saying. Listen, like, listen, Matty Ice got one more good year, and I think Matty Ice has earned – a shot at one more run. Like, he's like, look, man, we're going to go all in. We're going to try to give you some help. We're not going to quote, you know, Aaron Rodgers you. We're not going to know what you need. Don't give it to you. Let a draft come and go. You know, now, I don't know what we're going to do about the offensive line. That, that that's, a, that's a, you know. No but, no, but that's where you look at being in the top ten in the draft where, you know, you look around and – you have some 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 guys that have emerged, right? I mean, even on the offensive line, Chris Lindstrom was on some all-pro teams, uh, the, 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 the guard out of Boston College. But maybe if you can get a, and you don't know who's going to be there at eight, but eight is pretty high in the draft. The Falcons aren't normally accustomed to drafting that high. If you can get a Derek Stingley, if you can get a Kyle Hamilton, if you can get a Charles Cross, if you could get a, a, a Jordan Davis saw in a mock draft, I mean, are these the type of players that could give you 
that that little extra boost you might need. Kevin, as you've long said about the defense, I mentioned some defensive guys there. You don't have to be awesome on defense. Can you be okay? Can you be pretty good? And given what we're seeing in the division, potentially that might be good enough to win the division. Arthur Smith, is there, look, we talked about this too. Arthur Smith, I don't know how you're going to treat this year's preseason. I bet it won't be like last year's. I guarantee it. I don't want to listen. I listen. I, I listen. I, I mean, I I love Orlando. I mean, dear Orlando, those guys. I'm gonna say, dear Orlando, if you say one more thing about Mike Davis, I'm gonna jump through this phone. <laughs> because what happens is, BJ, when I was in the National Football League, I did, it took me a year to understand certain things. He goes, listen, dude. He says it's our goal to compete with the Colts, and I said, why can't we beat them? And somebody smacked me. Well, you can't beat no Colts, boy. But if you could compete with them, you could beat everybody else. Because it's I we so the thing is when you think about this Falcons team your goal is to say look man we have to win this division that is our only pass forward to making the playoffs because they start looking outside of the division any other division not the NFC South I feel very very you know I don't feel good about the Falcons chances but the NFC South Taysom Hill Trevor Simeon Jameis Winston Tampa Bay I love Kyle Trask but he hasn't played a down of football yet. And when you talk about Sam Darnold, I mean, he was seeing ghosts up there in in, uh, in New York. I mean, he's seeing the he's seeing the sky up there in Charlotte because they can't block nobody. Cam Newton is the backup. He don't scare nobody either. So I just think BJ twenty twenty two has to be a year. Samuel Jackson, come on out with the commercials, the rise up, Ti, you know, future, everybody root for the Falcons, you know, Quavo, y'all be on the sideline. Whether it's fake love or not, we gonna need it all, Dion. Listen, please don't take down because we up there watching the rounds. Here come Prime. BJ looking at me like it's Prime. And listen, and Prime had no hair. He got to come back because you know he got a he got a full head of hair. I mean, comeback player of the year is Prime's hair. You know, hair. Uh, Brian Erlacher's hair and Drew Brees' hair. So I'm just saying that's yeah. a comeback comeback hair of the year. And again, BJ has said. In terms of points per game, I went and looked it up because I, I agree. Can't, you know what I'm saying? Stats, no, stats, no, stats, stats, stats <laughs> no, I'm saying, but you don't have to be great defensively. You just need to be competent. Let's take a look at the top ten teams in total defense in terms of points per game allowed. Buffalo, they okay. went home. Yep. New England, yep. they went home. Denver, they weren't even in the playoffs. They were number three in scoring defense. Didn't even make New Orleans, Tampa Bay. Well, they gave up a huge drive with no time uh, there's the end of that game. They're out. Tennessee, they went home. Dallas, they went home. Kansas City, still in it at eight. Indianapolis, not in the playoffs. Nope. And San Francisco at nine. So two teams in the top ten in defense are in the final four right now. Cincinnati, down in the middle of the pack. Rams, down in the middle of the pack. Got to be okay. So it's just got to be okay. You can't be down there in the Atlanta. It, I mean, the Atlanta was, was fourth from the bottom in total scoring defense this year. I mean, no, no, no. no, no but, but BJ and Kevin, think about think about that. If, if a defensive coordinator comes in and say, listen, the camera's on. Hey, fellas, we got to get it going. Camera's gone. Fellas, listen. We just can't suck. Like, <laughs> I think mean, about it. Well, that's true. Because in a sense, I kept saying this. Listen, BJ, I asked you questions. I'll say, BJ. We need to play complimentary defense. You'll say, now, what do you mean by complimentary? I mean not suck. I mean we just got to – listen, a couple of three and outs, right? Don't don't let teams just go crazy because that's what – hasn't that been Atlanta's defense since we known Atlanta Falcons? It's always been complimentary, right? It's never like, man, we won with a defensive effort. When have we ever said that? In the history of the Falcons. So all I'm saying is, these young boys now are carrying on the tradition of complimentary defensive football, but the problem is, it's not complimentary. It's awful. 
You got to get <laughs> off the field. So we'll see what happens. We've got more to come here. Three and out. Big day for Major League Baseball, not only at the negotiating table, but we'll find out the latest in the Hall of Fame class that will be announced later tonight and some big names out there on the ballot and some big names could fall off if they don't get in. We'll get to that next. It's Three and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you back here on Three and Out. Of course, baseball in the midst of labor negotiations, and we will uh, talk to Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Baseball Insider, coming up in the final hour of the program. Also going to have the announcement or the release of the 2022 Hall of Fame class coming up a little bit later tonight. And this is an important one, uh, guys, because you'll have guys in the last stage of their Hall of Fame ballot in terms of the, the Rider Association, guys like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and others who were involved in that steroid era of baseball who, if they don't get in this time, might potentially fall off. Now, I know there's been some uh, loosening of opinions and minds as uh, this has gone on, and those guys have actually gotten a little bit more of the vote. But if you don't get in, it falls to the Veterans Committee. And again, we'll see what former players think about those guys who are suspected of uh, steroid use and cheating. Some cases like A-Rod, of course, a lot of people don't think A-Rod's going to get in. Uh, and some projections out there on that. But you could have a class of David Ortiz, potentially. Barry Bonds was on the, the fringe. Roger Clemens and some guys doing some projections because some writers have made their ballots public uh, when they vote. Uh, they're projecting that with about 50% of the ballot known that Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds would get in. You need 75% uh, with about 50% of the ballot zones. They're trending at like 76 77%. Would you expect? I mean, they they have not gotten in yet. So I guess what would the what would the change be? I guess just over time, you look at it and say, you know what? They played in an era where a large portion of the league was suspected of doing this thing, and it was kind of the era they've changed it. And maybe you just loosen your stance and say those guys were Hall of Famers in the era in which they played in. Maybe there's a footnote. And I know some guys have said, look, it happened, and baseball's tried to clean it up, and. Are you going to hold it over their head forever? Kind of like what baseball's done with Pete Rose. Like, hey, he gambled on baseball. He was banned from baseball. And you're like, you now actively run ads in the stadium for DraftKings at baseball games. Are you going to at some point say, Pete, who bet on himself, by the way, bet on his team to win. I'm not saying it makes it right. But are you going to hold that over him for the rest of his life and into the after he's dead? Or are you going to say, look, this dude has more hits than anybody that's ever played this game in the history of this entire planet, but we can't let him in. It's going to be interesting to see how the stances of some guys maybe have changed as they have aged over time. Because you get farther removed from the immediacy of it. Some Mm -hmm. guys will look back and say, well, maybe I was a little harsh in my early assessment of it. I'll change my mind. It's... I think I think sometimes when you start talking about like how, you know how do how do you know they always say man you want to show you how your person how a person really is get that person power when you're talking about these baseball sports writers and you know, the guys that's over uh, the Hall of Fame vote you start asking yourself so we can enjoy Clemens we can enjoy Barry Bonds we can enjoy their seasons I mean we can enjoy it but when it comes time to do right by them like what did they, like okay well I mean I think there's a lot of people that feel that the Barry Bonds home run record is a bit fraudulent. Because he was hitting and, and, more home runs okay, at 40 years old. Than he, do you think they're just trying to protect, you know, Hammer and Hank's record? At well, this no, point? But, but I don't even know if they're trying to do I think they look at it and say there was no suspicion of steroids for Hank Aaron when he played. Yeah. He hit 755 home runs. Barry Bonds hit more home runs at 40 and 40 plus than he did at 20. That doesn't happen. 
Right? I mean, that it, 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 well, Tom Brady might be challenging that a little bit, but by and large, you don't throw more touchdowns at 42 than you did at 28. You don't hit more home runs playing 162 games at 42 than you do at 28. You don't sometimes look physically more ripped up and cut up at 42 than you do at 28. You may be fatter, you may be thicker with age, but typically, BJ, you're not more swole at 40 than you are at 28. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's that's just, I'm just saying, that's just, and, 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 and again, and, 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 and people say, well, he was never caught. Okay. I mean, how many dudes, you know, look a certain way at 28 and then at 42 are like the most jacked human being you've ever well, seen? No, like, it just no, doesn't right, happen to right. you. I'm, I'm not, what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying but I guess, is, how do you contextualize the steroid era? Because it's like you said, it, uh, how, I, long did it, how long well, did it well, go on? Hold on, though, because Kevin, you would know, I, you're, you know, more of the baseball historian here on the show, but. You've seen reports, accusations, sure. uh, books, whatever that, that that say a substantial amount of right, and and I, that's been is that largely assumed, and I don't know what substantial means, but that that was a regular part of the game, that steroids, right. right? So, it would it be consistent you to just, only say I'm going to vote against guys who clearly tested positive? Or, I think there I think there are some that said if there was a known positive test that they tested for steroids, I'm not voting for them. And I think that's against A Rod. Some guys like, like no A Rod, no Clemens, right? And A Rod's obviously over six hundred homers and all that. But I think you look at the, the the era they played in. You could say, well, everybody was doing it. I know going back to the lessons you get taught as a kid. Well, if everybody's doing it, doesn't mean it's right at the end of the day. But you had a history of baseball where nobody broke the single season home run record for what 40, 50 years. And then all of a sudden you had Sosa, Bonds, McGuire, like three or four guys all and at Sosa's once. Sosa's still on the ballot, right? right? Sosa's still on And all, all of a sudden you had three or four guys all at the same time going for 60-plus and breaking records. You're going, this just doesn't add up, that it would be a hard thing to achieve. And now all of a sudden, all, now that baseball's cleaned it up, you're kind of back in that 40, 50 home run yeah. guy is really the leader, and he's probably way out and mashing ahead of, of everybody else. You don't see guys anymore pushing 60, 70 home runs like you randomly did. So why is that? You can say I never had a, I had a failed test, but why Barry Bonds in the era where you did it natural, were you hitting 73 home runs, and nobody since baseball, quote, cleaned itself up has come anywhere close to that? Anywhere close to that. I mean, hasn't, so, hasn't he, but hasn't, hasn't he like, uh, at this point, right, he is at the mercy of the voters. Sure. And he, and he, and he knows this. But Kevin, I mean, you being a, you being a, you listen, you being a baseball guy, like you you right. are a baseball guy. It's I know I know trying to clean up the game. I can I can respect trying to clean up the game. It's baseball still baseball. If if the greatest home run hitter that we've ever seen is not in the Hall of well, Fame. Well, you've well, also I mean, but, heard but, the but, argument but, though. Hold on, you've also heard the argument. And again, I don't know how you point to a debt, but you've heard people say. Even before Barry Bonds yes. became a power hitter, yes. he was clearly a Hall of Fame well, He player. was already kind of a power hitter, but he was not in that stratosphere. And I, I just look at it and say, uh, and, and I'll say, I think I'm one that thinks Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer before all the, the steroid uh, implications went out there. And I know people say, well, if everybody's doing it, I get it. I just look at it and say, uh, people would always come back in the, that era and say, steroids don't help you hit a baseball. No, but you're in Major League Baseball. If you are in Major League Baseball, you have elite hand-eye coordination. There's no, there's no, I don't care if you're a guy hitting 200. If you are in Major League Baseball, you have elite hand-eye coordination to be able to hit a baseball that's going 90, 95, 100 mile an hour in some cases and moving with a round bat trying to hit a round ball. You have elite hand-eye coordination. So it doesn't help you hit a baseball. You can already do that. Will it help you hit it 10 feet farther? It could. If, if it helps you hit it 10 feet farther, all of a sudden those... 290 foot blasts 
become home runs. But I guess to reverse and so, those, and I, I, I don't know what the right, I'm, I'm, I'm asking. To reverse those questions, was A-Rod a Hall of Famer pre-Barry Bonds, pre- I, I think there was many that would think he was on that track. Now, obviously, he gets to New York, starts hitting more home runs, he gets caught with steroids. I think there are people that will hold that against him and say, your numbers into lock Hall of Fame status were inflated because you were cheating the game. Be, it's not so much. It's not so much that you weren't a Hall of Fame player. It's I'm not voting you in because you clearly cheated. It's it, it's that more so than the cheating itself turns you into a Hall of Fame. Sure, player. I think it enhances what was going to be a Hall of Fame resume and puts your numbers in an askew format. Where were you one of the best ever? Maybe were you top five all time homers, Alex Rodriguez? Now, now, maybe not without the Royals. I will say this. I will say this. I mean, because I mean, I can see both sides of it. I played. I played in the era of Sean Merriman. Sean Merriman got caught with PDs. Sean Merriman came off with PDs, and I think he still had like like eighteen sacks. He was still like off a defensive player of the year. The reason why I can see both sides is this: coming from a player who I felt as though my talent was enough. If I'm going up against a guy. And I come to find that this guy was cheating. It makes you it makes you feel a type way because like, well, dude, that is a significant competitive edge over me. If you're taking, if our talent is right at the same level, and you taking something that's gonna boost it, and it's not even that. Obviously, steroids to help you recover faster, get back on the field quicker, right? I mean, that's why you would do yeah, that. And, yeah, and, and look, but but at the same time too, this is what I would ask the writers. I would be like, look, man, like I listen, you you can do the right thing and still you know clean up baseball because since then. I mean, unless there's something crazy, I think guys are scared to death to even do that, to even attempt to do that. Because like you said, Kevin, we ain't seen no 70-some home runs. But I'm just saying, at the end of the day, Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. He just, you know, he, he just made a bad decision even though he never got caught. A-Rod, I mean, A-Rod got caught, what, twice with it, Kevin? I think I think he got caught twice. At least once, yeah. At least once. I'm just saying, Kevin, if you're – because what happens is, if you're one of those writers, the question is, do you vote those guys in? I, I think some of them it will be hard to do, uh, knowing that I feel like they got an advantage. Some of those guys, I feel like Barry Bonds, to me, was on a Hall of Fame trajectory without it. Mark McGuire was probably on a Hall of Fame trajectory without it. And, right, Clemens. Uh, and Clemens was probably on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Yeah. I mean, as a rookie, I think he came in and was, I think he had a 20-strikeout game as a rookie. I mean, the, he was putting up major numbers as a young player and was probably a Hall of Famer without it. It's unfortunate that they felt... They need to do that, and maybe they extended their career to get them into that you know, extra stratosphere. we got more to come here. Three and out, Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you back here. Three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Baseball Insider, will join us coming up in just a little bit. We'll also take a look at some NFL draft uh, coming up as well. We mentioned the, uh, the big champions parade in Blackshear this Sunday, honoring Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett and the Georgia Bulldogs at the 2020 Pierce County State Championship uh, football team. But big story up on ESPNCoastal.com. Encourage you to check out by our own Christian Gokel. Did a story on Luke Bennett. No relation to B.J. Bennett. Luke Bennett, Stetson Bennett's brother, who's also trying to pursue football uh, at the collegiate level as well. So a great read there. And I encourage you to do that. Also a little high school basketball tonight on ESPNCoastal.com. Uh, we got a little Beach versus Groves tonight. Nice region basketball matchup there. You can go to ESPNCoastal.com. Go to ESPNCoastal on our YouTube channel. And uh, check out that ball game tonight. But go to ESPNCoastal.com and I uh, read Christian's story on Luke Bennett, brother of Stetson Bennett, trying to pursue football there at the next level. Yeah, and a really in-depth uh, interview, interview-based story. So uh, check that out. Great work by Christian. And then uh, excited to see more high school basketball tonight with uh, PJ and Cam. Those guys do a great job. So 
Looking forward to uh, the basketball. But, yeah, check out that story on ESPNCoastal.com if you haven't yet. So I, I'm listening. I would love to see uh, the Bennett, the Bennett, uh, you know, our family tradition, uh, you know, get extended, Kevin, with uh, with uh, the brother of uh, Stetson Bennett, Luke. I mean, look, he, he's going to definitely get a shot now, right? He's going to have to get used to saying, are you Stetson Bennett's brother? But I, if, if that's what I got to do to get a scholarship, so be it. <laughs> so great read there. Go check it out. We'll come back. Kylie McDaniel will join us. We're talking Major League Baseball, day two of some talks there. Uh, today, what's the very latest out of the MLB. He'll join us when we return here on 3 and Out. Hit us up on Twitter. Love to hear from you. At Pigskin Radio. We're streaming live, ESPNCoastal.com. Good to have you back here, 3 and Out, on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, Major League Baseball, having day two of talks to try to figure out this uh, labor situation as spring training, at least as of now, would set to be starting in a couple of weeks with pitchers and catchers reporting. Obviously, a lot of fans would love for them to meet uh, those deadlines. And joining us here to talk about it, ESPN MLB insider Kylie McDaniel joins us here on 3 and Out. Kylie, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man, appreciate you uh, appreciate you joining us. What can you tell us uh, about uh, what's happened over the last couple of days? Is there a sense that a work stoppage would be majorly detrimental to the sport if it, if it were to happen here in 2022? Yeah, the last few days we've seen the thing that everyone around the sport has been like sort of calling for since the lockout happened on December 1st, which was, well, both sides have said these are like, if you think of it like a spectrum, like from you know left to right, if you want to think political and apply it to the, the two sides in the labor negotiation, they've said what their two extreme stances are, and we can imagine somewhere in the middle what the middle is of their stances on, say, eight or ten different topics. And you're like, okay, let's just take like somewhere around the middle – uh, maybe to their side on this one, maybe to their side on this one, but around the middle in each of these 10 things, well, why don't we just you know sit there for a couple of days and we'll work it out? But the problem is they don't do anything until they have to, and deadlines are what makes them do stuff. And as you're mentioning, we're a couple weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting, and then like a month away from like spring training games happening. And so now that's why this week we finally have seen both sides have moved a little off of their extreme stance and moved a little toward the middle on a couple of issues and then the other side, in response, the, uh, the league today uh, basically countered the players coming off of a couple of their stances. They came off a couple of their stances and sort of clarified, like, hey, we don't want to come off of this one. We'll come off of these two. We'll consider talking about these topics. We'll agree with you on A, B, and C. And we just got, like, you know, 24 more letters to go through. But, like, there's movement. So, so that's good. But it's also, like, two months later than it needed to be. So at this point, what are the most dramatic or most pressing, I guess, points of contention? So this is funny. I uh, about two weeks ago, I kept reading the the articles that you know my colleague Jeff Pass and Jesse Rogers have been writing, and other people have been writing, and I started losing track of what was going on. As somebody that's like in the middle of this, uh, and I texted Jeff and I said, "Does anybody have an article or an article where there's like a table of like here's the topic, here's the two stances, and then here's the you know a reasonable middle." And he's like, yeah, no one's done that. And I'm like, well, I'm now reading. And I went through and read all the articles for the last, like, two months trying to catch up on what had been happening. And I realized the reason it had, like, confused me is there's, like, literally 15 different topics that they are negotiating over. And multiple times, one side would offer something, the other side would counter, and and then the first side would, like, completely take the thing they proposed last time off the table and propose a totally different thing. So it's almost like they've choreographed this dance where it's like, all right, we're going to sit at a 10, you'll sit at a zero. We'll go to eight. All right, now we'll go to nine. All right, now we'll go to seven. And so that's what they're what they're sort of fighting over. And some of the topics that they're doing these sorts of things with, I won't bore you with all the specific details, but uh, the players basically want to get more of the payroll paid to younger players because the team's 
are paying or playing more of the younger players. And so basically they're becoming more of the playing time. And so the players want them to get more of the money. So you have to basically change the rules for that to happen. Cause basically if you're in your first three years in the league, you make the minimum all three years. And so they're negotiating over a couple different ways to do that, uh, including incentive bonuses based on how well you play, raising the minimum itself, changing when arbitration, which is years three through six, changing how and when that goes, how much they get paid, when it ends, when it starts, all that sort of thing, and each one of those have like a couple different mechanisms around them, and then the rest of it is basically in some way tied to competitive balance, whether it's a draft lottery or it's revenue sharing, um, th- those sorts of ideas. Or if we go to an international draft, we have trading of picks. Like, these are all things that on their own don't really do anything, but both sides see like, oh, if we take universal DH and expanded playoffs, that you know maybe increases the money, so this side wants it, but then you know we'll we'll, we'll do a draft lottery, so teams don't want to tank as much, and then we'll do less revenue sharing, so that then uh, you know low revenue teams can't just pocket money. And in concert, they move four or five of those in one direction. The other side moves four or five things they want, and then they sort of find somewhere in the middle. When you when you think about when you think about right now, as you mentioned, uh, it hasn't really been a you know, what, a couple of weeks away uh, from pitches, you know, those guys are reporting. How much of a disadvantage are the players at? Because when you think about the negotiating table, this is what owners do all the time. And as you mentioned, when you think about the guys who this really represented, you talk about the the mid-tier, the low-tier guys who want to go from, what, 615000 to 775000 minimum. We're talking about guys who only make money on the field. They don't make money away from baseball. Yeah, one of the talking points uh, on the owner side is it's millionaires versus billionaires trying to make it so that the average fan doesn't care about this because it's people that have more money than they do. Who cares which side it is? Uh, and in reality, almost half the players aren't millionaires <laughs> because they play a year or two, the minimum, which they get, they only they play the entire season and stay up the entire year, which most of them don't. Uh, you have to then play two full years. You take out taxes and such. You're still not at a million dollars. And so it's really like some millionaires and a lot of people making less than that or in career earnings are less than that versus billionaires. And then we, you know, another topic that has come up is players that are on the 40 man roster cannot be in contact with their team. And there's been some stories where like a player on the back of a player's of a team's 40 man roster has a wedding, has invited a coach and the coach can't come because they can't be in the same place. Now imagine if that player is coming off a Tommy John surgery and is going through rehab. And now for three months, he can't go in the team facility because he's been going in every day. Uh, you got all kinds of little things like that. In addition to, as you're getting at, like just the bigger picture of, uh, the players' union is sort of run by agents and the sort of famous players making a lot of money, and they're representing a lot of big leaguers that aren't making a lot of money, and they're also representing high school, college, and international free agents who haven't signed yet or in the minor leagues that are not part of the union and are making even less money and are not even part of the union. So it's like real, it's very easy for 30 billionaires to be on the same side and not talk to the media and present a united front. And if you think about who the players' union is representing, it's almost impossible for them to all be on the same page. And that's why some of the messaging stuff can get uh, a little muddy at this time. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN MLB Insider, our guest here on 3 and Out. And Kylie, I'm surprised, uh, again, uh, when you talk about competitiveness and good for the game and getting more players paid that the players haven't pushed for maybe like a minimum payroll. I know baseball doesn't have a salary cap, but I know in the NFL you have to spend, what, 97%. Of the of of the salary cap, could there be a an issue that the players raise? Say, look, we can't have Baltimore spending less money than one player makes on a whole nother roster. Uh, why why wouldn't the players push to have a minimum spend by these owners to com- increase competitive balance amongst the league and get more guys paid across the league? So this is something that's bothered me for years and conversations I have with people uh, that are really in the know still don't completely understand it. But the stance that the players' union has taken 
is that if we put in a salary floor, that then begs for a salary ceiling. And once there's a salary ceiling, then that will keep salaries from rising because then all the teams at the very top that spend the most money, they typically are the one signing guys for $300 million. So once you limit how much they can spend, then that top end of the market that defines everything will stop going up. So now they're trying to change, like basically change all the incentives around it. Like, oh, we're not going to give the teams at the bottom, instead of them getting $100 million in revenue sharing, they only get $10 million. We'll cap it at that. That was in their most recent proposal. So that that team can't run a $30 million uh, payroll and be terrible. Like, they, it won't be viable at that point. So that's like the way they're trying to get at it. Uh, and I think there's other things they can do in terms of like one of the proposals that the, uh, the, the players union made was that you can't be in the top five picks at the draft three years in a row. There's different ways to sort of disincentivize tanking, and that's the way they've chosen to go about it. I tend to think because right now the way we have the luxury tax set up, almost all of the teams are treating that as a salary cap anyway. Like the Dodgers went over this year, the Yankees went over the year before, uh, but generally teams go over, they just barely go over. So it's like a, it's like a soft cap basically. So they already have a, a cap on top, the thing that they said they didn't want anyway. They functionally have one. So why not, like you're saying, put one on the bottom and just make you know both ends of that uh, a little more um, set in stone? And they just are completely against it. And there's a couple other topics like that that it won't bother going into around the draft, where I think it would be good for everybody, but the union just decided that is like a stance they're not interested in, and they'd rather get at that problem a different way. Is there a chance with all the negotiations, all the complexities, that uh, baseball might not be played by opening day? Or or, or do you think that's, that's not in danger of uh, – you know, possibly happening yet. So I'm going to pull it up. I actually have done two polls on my, uh, on my Twitter account to see what the sentiment was, because when this whole thing started December 1st, which everyone knew was happening, you know, year in advance, uh, I assumed it was 85, 90% chance that we would get, you know, maybe not 162 games, but at least 150, like some reasonable number uh, close to that full thing. So I put out a poll on December 2nd, uh, and 43% of people said we're going to play 162 games like the full thing, which surprised me. I thought it would be less than that. And I did it again uh, last week, and 50% of people thought it would be 150 games or more. Um, so that's just, you know, the random mostly baseball fans that follow me on Twitter. Uh, I still tend to think that there is too much to be lost, and most of these TV contracts have it written into it that if it's less than 150 games, then all of a sudden the TV networks don't have to pay you as much. So I think that's where – the pain is because you know one season you miss 15 of your 30 um spring training games it's not that much money um so like if spring training gets uh, dramatically reduced you know one time over the next five years i don't think the owners really feel any pain there that the players aren't getting paid so they don't lose any money there so that's not enough pain to make somebody do something they don't want to do we're getting below 150 games because they can condense the schedule a bit like they could take a whole month off the season but only miss 15 games or so uh, make that work. So I think, you know, April 1st is sort of like, uh, that's when the you know, season's supposed to start. I think May 1st is the actual cutoff. If we can't get on the field playing major league games by May 1st, then all of a sudden teams are not making the money they were making off their TV contracts. You have to change like the structure of the playoffs, uh, all kinds of stuff like that starts happening. So that's, and then obviously you need like at least three or four weeks ramp up to finish free agency and have a version of spring training, all that kind of thing. So in reality, I think you know, mid-March or so is when stuff has to happen, and I think that is what will happen. Like, these guys, they still respond to deadlines, even if they seem like they don't care. 
Kyler, when it's all said and done, how confident are you that this uh, that this uh, players association can really go toe to toe with owners who that who have proven in the past to kind of just let's look at these guys as a pushover and say, look, man, we're gonna go back and forth because we have to. But when it's all said and done, we're gonna give you a low ball offer and we're gonna use time and money on on our side and hopefully you guys say yay because we the billionaires and I've, the billionaires versus millionaires type type of thing. How confident do you think this PA can finally you know grow a backbone and kind of stand up to these owners? Well, they've been uh, collecting all of the uh, merchandise rights money and not distributing it to players for the last five years so that they can pay players $5,000 a month for as long as they need to. So they're trying to position themselves so it's not, um, you, know, the, you know, the billionaire owners can say, like, oh, well, we can, you know, we got these teams that are worth a billion dollars. We can borrow money against them as much as we need to. Like, we're not going to feel pain for years, whereas the players will. And that's kind of always going to be true in labor negotiations to some degree. But they position themselves, I think, with their stances being pretty reasonable. I think, as I said before, you can see what these middle grounds are, and they're moving closer to them. Eventually, we're going to find out, I think, in about two weeks, what things that one side wants to be able to move on, and the other side is like, I will absolutely not move. And it's like, okay, now we'll move on, or we'll get in a fight over it, and that's it. Uh, so, yeah, I think things are lining up for the union with uh, some different negotiators and, I think, some urgency and some messaging has all shifted in a way that is helpful I think the public has turned against the owners, whereas a couple CBAs ago, that was not really a thing that existed. Um, so I think things are lined up for it to be an actually fair deal and to not lose more than 10 or 12 games. I just think there's too many things pointing at that happening. Um, but, yeah, the owners have won the last two handily. So, like, history would say bet on the billionaires. But I think everything's lining up to say this one should be pretty close to even. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN MLB Insider, our guest here on 3 and Out. And, and finally, Kylie, when this does get done, is it as simple like, hey, the deal's signed, tomorrow free agency starts? Because I know in this state, obviously, uh, fans are very intrigued with whether or not the Braves can get Freddie Freeman to come back. I mean, is that kind of the timeline? Hey, you sign the deal, and it's the Wild West with free agency starting immediately. Yeah, I think it will. It might be like pause a day or two once it's reported that there's been an agreement. It'll take a day or two for all the you know eyes to be dotted and teeth to be crossed and, and whatnot. Um, and to make sure that the rules around for agency and uh, everyone understands exactly what their budgets are and if any rules have changed around that. But, yeah, I would imagine once it gets reported that there is an agreement, free agency will start in less than a week after that, and I would bet that Freddie Freeman will sign pretty quickly. And I would also say uh, Carlos Correa, the other you know definite nine-figure uh, player, he switched agencies to Scott Boris, Boris who negotiated the Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, Scherzer, negotiated all those deals. Uh, he's got a lot of other guys on his plate, uh, Conforto, Bryant, Rodon, a lot of those guys, and he just got Correa, who's the top dog. He's going to want to get him off the board soon, too. And I think it might be, I mean, I would say the two most likely teams would be Yankees with Correa and Braves with Freeman, and I think both of them are motivated to move quickly because if they don't get those players, they got to get somebody else. Um, so I think, I think we might see some more fireworks that we saw at the end of free agency. Right as we get started, I think those two guys go off the board pretty quickly. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN MLB Insider, our guest here on 3 and Out. Kylie, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Yep, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Kylie McDaniel, our guest here on 3 Now, as the labor negotiations continue. And as you said, a lot of it's kind of the boring down-in-the-weeds stuff of, uh, of negotiating, Ben. But obviously these are things that got to get ironed out so that this game can operate smoothly. As you said, for at least five years moving into the future and uh, kind of have that labor stability. The only thing that scares me about this, Kevin, as we mentioned, four players, <clears throat> you're talking about the PA. You're talking about the PA that if we if – we, I mean, I don't know where PAs are ranked, but I think that uh, – MLB's PA is kind of way down, and we talk about kind of getting bullied because the guys who are, the guys who are really affects, you know, uh, really aren't really uh, being represented at the uh, at the negotiating table. But right now, you know, uh, the owners know they got a little time. But as we get closer to opening day, 
And there is no negotiation. There is no, uh, you know, there is no new nego- you know, uh, CBA. They're going to use that against him saying, look, I know you good, Harper, and I know you good, Mookie Betts, and, but what about your teammates who I didn't even think about? You can't even go up to the facility. So if I was using the team's trainer and I'm a league minimum guy, it's taking everything I got to be able to keep my rehab going. So it's a lot of things to factor in. Hopefully hopefully cooler heads can prevail, a.k.a. these owners can budge a little bit because at the end of the day, Kevin, they are in the business of making money, not losing money. Hopefully that'll that'll benefit the players as well. We've got more to come here. Three and out all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Hit us up on Twitter. Love to hear from you at Pigskin Radio. Great to be here on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben. NFL Draft. Obviously a big buildup uh, to the draft. He, a lot of talent in this year's NFL Draft. Charlie Campbell of Walter Football going to join us, uh, what, BJ, on Thursday uh, here on the show. So looking forward to that. And he is uh, talking up uh, Jordan Davis of the University of Georgia, big defensive tackle. He said, uh, quote, some league sources are extremely high on Davis, but I also know some area scouts who were not projecting him to the first round if he had entered the 2021 NFL draft and have some concerns that he might be a one-trick pony for the NFL. The 6'6", 340-pound Davis is a mountain of a man with unique speed and athleticism. Team sources compare him to Albert Hainsworth and John Henderson. First round Ooh. first round pick for, uh, for Jordan. I know there's a lot of people that said, uh, been in that first game with Alabama, in the SEC Championship saying, was that maybe the exposing moment of, is he a two-down guy? No, no, I'm not saying it like he's a bad player. I'm saying, is he a two-down guy versus a three-down guy at the next level, and does that move his stock a little bit? That's, that's I'm not be, saying he's not a good player. That's not what I meant. That's that's going to be uh, his uh, – well, BJ, hold on now. That's what the draft is. Let me, let me, let me I understand that, but I've seen that, and not the – not to focus the whole segment on that, but I've seen on social media. Is that you, is that a critique when we talked no, about somebody's I'm shoulders not, being too rounded right? and their no, fingers? I, so I understand well, what you're saying, but but I just I, I always find it to be fascinating. I'm not talking about you, but but but, but when people talk about a prospect, okay, Jordan Davis just w- was all everything, won mm-hmm. all the yep. awards, was yep. an All American, led one of the greatest defenses ever, yep. led one of the most dominant rush defenses in the history of the sport, was immovable, was the starting point for a defense the likes of which we maybe haven't seen in 20 right. years, mm-hmm. and your first reference is going to be, yeah, but on two series in the SEC championship game, maybe he looked tired. Like, I, that, that, that's just – that that's hard for me to process. When I think about George, sure, everything is – Well, most is, weeks he was going against somebody he was better than. Well, not, I, not necessarily that's the a case lot of players. In, that's I mean, not necessarily I, the case in the NFL. I mean, I'm just saying. I would imagine that, that, that most guys who go in the top five or ten or 15 who are elite – dynamic athletes are probably better than the guys they're going up against, which is why they're drafted in the top half of the first round. But when I think about Jordan Davis, the good and the bad, everything. Yes, Ben, you're right. The totality of his draft profile, like the 97th thing I think about is, well, there was two series against Alabama where he looked tired. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say this. You could tell that Jordan Davis is one of the great, it's one of the best to ever do it because of who they compare him to. I mean, Albert, is that fair? You played with Albert. I played well. Well, I played with Albert, and I played against John Henderson in college and in pros. I think what happens is, though, BJ. I mean, we look at Albert Hainsworth based off what he became. We talking about that first hundred million dollar guy, John Henderson. You talk about a mountain of a man. John Henderson is all six seven. I mean, three hundred and you know thirty three hundred and forty pounds. But Jordan Davis is Jordan Davis is showing that look, man. What am I at my best? Because. What I had to understand about the draft process is it is our job to expose your weaknesses. And how do you talk about that? Like, you, it, it's, you can't avoid it. A, a coach's job is not to go to the tape. It's like 
I'm not going to go through the tape and watch everybody get dominated. I'm, I'm going to. All say, I'm saying is, to me, that would be like going back to Joe Burrow a couple of years ago and, and going, Joe, man, you balled out. But in that Auburn game, the second half, you guys just well, really didn't do. Sense, and I'm like, though, that's the first thing. But we in a wrote. sense, though, this is the thing, though. If I'm talking to Jordan Davis, I'm saying, be ready to answer that question. Don't try to avoid it. Because when you think about it, what the NFL does, they take what you don't do well, and that's what they're looking to expose. So when Jordan Davis, first time first time he puts on pads, they're going to say, all right, let's, let's, let's see how he handles it. Because football is about adjusting about adjusting to your weaknesses all the time. Aaron Donald gets double and triple team all the time, and you can't tell. That's how he That's how he prepares. As you mentioned, Kevin, um, if I'm going up against guys, I'm better than every week. I mean, I'm supposed to go out there and dominate. We'll see what happens, but I think Jordan Davis get used to being, uh, you know, a critique a lot when it comes to the, the that first the SEC championship game and not the national championship game. Yeah, again, I wasn't pointing it out as as two plays he was tired. I'm saying when you run a system, how effective was he in that game when mm-hmm. Alabama ran a system that took him out of the ball game uh, essentially? Now Georgia found a script for that, uh, obviously in the national championship game. Uh, but, I, again, they're, they're going to point out what you didn't do well because most weeks it wasn't even funny. You were going up against guys that weren't close to you talent-wise and you were dominating. And, and I look at it in some cases where, BJ, we talk about this with high school kids. Yeah, you're going to have some good tape. That's because if you're a D1 guy and I'm a D1 offensive tackle, chances are you lined up a few nights against a dude who was probably 5'10", 220 pounds. Well, you're supposed to dominate that guy. You know, and I think for, for Jordan Davis, he was going to dominate. I think if I'm evaluating you for a top 10 pick, I'm going straight to Alabama games, both of them, so I can look at how you did against the best uh, yes. you were going to see all season long. Uh, and, what and, about and, Clemson? I mean, what about I, I, I would about go to that. Florida? I would what go to that tape, too. Auburn. What about, I mean, yes, I understand. I definitely <clears throat> think it's fair to reference that. I do. I and just, with all due respect, Florida and Auburn were not even close to the same stratosphere of what Alabama put on the field this year. Right. But, so I, I'm but going I to the Alabama think, tape first. But that's I also where I'm going. think there are countless prospects where if you look at solely their tape against Alabama— you might say, well... I'm not saying that for everybody. I'm saying about a guy I'm going to pick in the top ten. Right, but... Who, I, how did you do against the best you saw all I mean, year? And there's two Joe, examples. Joe Burrow's first game against Alabama, he got shut out. So, if we're talking about... So, I can't look at that tape? That, no, I'm saying... I'm, a, I'm saying, in response to how we introed the segment, I've seen a lot of first references for Jordan Davis that are that. Where it's Jordan Davis, you know, the guy who got tired in the Alabama game. And I'm like, that's the first reference we have for Jordan Davis? Like, not... The guy that was the starting point for maybe the best defense we've seen in a generation? Yes, I think it's absolutely fair to say, hey, Jordan, if you run into an up-tempo team, is that something that suits your skill set? Of course. And I absolutely agree you go to the tape against the best of the best first. But I also think, just for me, I've seen that a couple times where it's Jordan Davis you know the Alabama, and I'm like, was it that bad? Well, I mean, like, you're it- you're acting like I'm saying you can't play. We're talking about a guy no, that people think that. is going to be picked in the first half of the first round. I mean, I, I think that's where you you want to make sure that you're making a correct pick because there was a time that a certain individual in the show advocated uh, for the Atlanta Falcons to get a certain defensive tackle that also dominated in college and aren't everybody I, glad they I, didn't I, do no, that? Look, I, think I mean, that's I'm just fair. what's my criticism of Aiden Hutchinson? Where were you against Georgia? Yeah. I mean, I I think that's fair, but what I'm saying is. Very rarely do I hear the other reference first. Maybe I've just been on the wrong message boards reading the wrong stories where it's like I look at Jordan Davis, and to me, I, and, and I'm interested to ask Charlie Campbell about this, to me he looks like a lock top 15 pick. And I've seen some mock drafts that don't have him in the first round. And I, I, I don't understand that because I'm looking at, and I get what you guys are saying. If it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
a lot of defensive formations are are circumstance responsive. So if it's uh, a two-minute drill and you're trying to rush the passer, you may not have traditionally a Vita Vea or a Jordan Davis out on the field because you want four pass rushers out on the field in that circumstance. But outside of maybe that limited example, I think you're talking about a guy that is the absolute focal point, especially in a 3-4, which is what we've – I know it's kind of hybrid, but we've mm-hmm. seen the Falcons run – He's 6'6", six, six. he's 340, he's done it for three years. He is unblockable. He demands, at the very least, multiple players from the from the opposing offense. I, I'm surprised he's not more of a lock of the top first half of the first round type player. And when I read reviews on him, and, and there is a wide array of opinions. Some people, again, don't have him in the first round. Mm-hmm. My thought is, if you're looking for an interior defensive lineman, what more can you want? And, Ben, you might have an example that I don't know of because I don't know the schemes and the histories. But normally, if you're 6'6", 345, are you on the field field in two-minute defense anyway? No, but I, but I will say this. I mean, this is what makes the, uh, the draft process so, uh, so strenuous. We, th- nothing is cut and dry. Like, all 250-something picks are a gamble. I don't care if you're going top 10 or Mr. Irrelevant. We don't know how anybody's going to pan out. You've garnered enough attention to to warrant a certain draft stock. When you think about Jordan Davis, it's something Kevin said. If I am a top ten pick, I am a, a, essentially one of the faces of the franchise before I even get there. Jordan Davis to me warrants the top fifteen pick. But what teams do in the NFL that it, that that they don't have time in college, man, we got to put together a game plan. We can't specifically try to you know scheme one guy. They, they will scheme you in the league. They will be like, look, dude. We take away. I go back to I go back to Kansas City versus Buffalo. We talk about the kid BJ that had four touchdown passes, right? Gabe for, Davis. Gabe Davis. The re, you know why? Because Stephon Diggs had three catches for seven yards. So they took away their best player. If I Jordan Davis on a defense that that was star studded, you got to decide: Do I take away him? Well, you got Nicobe Dean. Oh, you know. Then, then you got you know uh, you know. I mean, you got a bunch of guys like Jerron Walker and so on and so forth. On a defense in a top, uh, if I'm going top eight, that means I'm probably not going to a defense that is probably you know really good. So I'm going to be a focal point. Doesn't mean I'm not I'm not I'm not going to fit the bill. But because of the Fletcher Coxes of the world, or the Chris Jones of the world, or the Aaron Donalds of the world, you expect the guys to have double digit sack totals. But are those guys? Correct me if I'm wrong. And zero technique are those guys zero technique noses? No, they're, they're not zero. Okay, well, well let's take another step. They compare him to uh, you know uh, Henderson. And, uh, you know, Albert Hainsworth, is it Vince Wilford? Because that's the greatest nose I've ever seen. So either either way, you can't run from the position you play and who they're going to compare you to. Vince Wilford. Vince Wilford but is- that's what I'm getting at. I don't remember. When Vince Wilford or Terrence Cody or players who were true zero technique noses mm-hmm. were coming out, was there the same criticism of what are they going to do when, it's, uh, when an offense is going up tempo at the end of a half? Normally, those guys aren't in those situations. Well, 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 uh, well that's what I'm saying, though. And Vince Wilford will be in. Because this because this is what Jordan Davis got to understand. Dude, if we take you out in crunch time, what are you here for? You are here to be in the most pivotal moments. Against my junior year, both me and Vince Wilford's junior year, they threw me a screen. No, no, they threw a, they threw a screen, and I got spun around. And when I turned around, who was running straight down the line? That was Vince Wilford. Scared me to death. But... 
You take a Vince Wilford with all those guys they have on that defense, BJ, he still stood out. Jordan Davis was the guy not named to Kobe Dean on his defense. What, what they are saying about Jordan Davis is, can you be what you haven't been? If you're the top eight pick, you have to do something you haven't done, meaning you can't get tired. You you got to go from, like Kevin say, two downs to three downs. That's the difference. in a. Why would Zeke Ezekiel Elliott go in the top five? Because he's a three-down back. Not a two-down back that when it's third and one, you got to take him out. Guys that don't come off the field is what top ten picks do. I'm sorry. That's how it should be. Right, wrong. That means that out of every player in the country, you are a top ten pick, and you're a D-tackle. We'll, yeah. we'll see. And we're just getting started on draft evaluation, but Charlie Campbell will join us coming up on Thursday here on 3 and Out. we got more to come. 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you back here, 3 and Out, on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, glad you are with us. As again, we talk to a draft talk, and uh, Ben, you talk about that distinction because people just say, oh, top ten pick. What are teams looking for? And that's why I think you get overly – in the weeds, so to speak, on top 10 picks. Like, well, what if you're only a two-down guy? You could be the most dominating guy, but if you're not in there on third down, third down at five, maybe it's the most important, and we need you in there, maybe you're a 20 to 20, 20 to 30 pick or something like that. So how much of that do you think goes on when you look at guys like, man, this guy can really play. Why is he getting slotted maybe farther back than, than people think he should be? I mean that's a, that's a that's a very very fair criticism or you know very very fair fee, uh, very very fair uh, feedback. BJ, something me and you were talking about in the break. Look, your job is to adjust to to what you don't do well. That's what that's what the NFL does. It the difference in the good and the great is how is their willingness to adjust. The thing about Vince Wilfork is he didn't just play nose. He he dominated nose, and when they had to move him over to play the tackle, he did that well too because he knew that my my best ability is availability, and, and the more you can do. He was on the field, on the field, so much so that they're not supposed to be able to tell if you're not on the field. It's almost like when you when you if I'm a listen, I, when I was with the Buccaneers in 2008, I I got to play with Ike Hillier, the great Ike Hillier from the University of Florida. Ike Hillier came in on third down. It was third and Ike. Everybody knew he was coming in to catch the rock on third down, and he'll run off the field. Why? Because at that point, he didn't have he didn't have the same breakaway ability, but he had a skill set. You can't be a specialty player coming out in the draft. No, you can't do that. And what I'm saying is, I I, I understand what you're saying, and I understand what you're saying about it being a fair criticism and something teams are going to address. What I'm saying is, for a zero technique, six six, three hundred and forty five pound tackle, that's a that's a a, a non-fit in terms of your your role, period. To mm-hmm. me, that would be like looking at a tight end coming out and going, well, is he going to be on the field on obvious Hail Mary situations? Well, that's not what you're bringing him in to do. Jordan Davis, and I would assume, mm-hmm. I don't know this, y'all both know more than, than I do about schemes, I would guess that if you're a traditional 3-4 defense, mm-hmm. that if it is an obvious, you know, go, 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 you are not in the 3-4, you are in more of a hybrid dime or nickel or quarters-based defense, so you're not in the scheme anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's why when I hear, oh, well, Jordan Davis isn't going to be able, if if teams get up and go, 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 well, every, every scheme change and formation change takes players off the field. Uh, there, there were, there were, there were schemes that take the best linebackers off the field because you're bringing in an extra defensive back. There are obvious passing situations where you take the best defensive tackles in the game off the field because as good as they are, they're not as good at rushing the passer directly as another player. Mm-hmm. So every 11 you have on the field is corresponsive to the circumstances and the scheme and the situation that you're facing. And I don't know that there are many zero-technique tackles in the National Football League that you expect to dominate especially if they're 
true zero technique again, six five, I don't know, six five, six six, whatever, three hundred and forty pounds that you expect them to be not only on the field but dominating in obvious hurry go passing situations. So I, that I'm I'm not saying it's not fair to criticize Jordan Davis. I absolutely think it's fair to criticize Jordan Davis. What I am saying is it feels like we're putting a whole lot of emphasis on something that's not what he does. Not only, we're not saying he can't do it, mm-hmm. we're saying that's not what he does. Just like a tight end wouldn't be the primary target on a traditional you know, 65-yard Hail Mary. Yeah. Jordan Davis is a zero-technique tackle. His job is to come in on first down, on second down, on third and short, on goal line situations, and dominate at the line of scrimmage. On third and 13, I don't know that you want him in there, and I don't think that's a negative. I think that's that's by proxy of the position that he plays. On third and 13, you want a probably hybrid tackle end coming in to play the inside to try to swim move the, the guard and get in and, and, and attack the passer. You're not going to have many zero techniques in on third and 13 on an obvious passing down. I, I, I agree with the criticism, and I think it's fair to criticize Jordan Davis, but I just think if you're going to criticize a player, criticize them for what they do and what their expectations are going to be. I, I and and you and, and then you went through the draft. I mean, maybe in the in, in the modern NFL, zero techniques have to rush the passer now. Maybe that's maybe that's becoming the new status quo in the National Football League. But through my time watching football, I haven't seen many. And maybe you have an example. I haven't seen many zero techniques who that's what they're asked to do. Zero technique, set the tone for the linebackers, mm-hmm. dominate goal line, dominate mm-hmm. short yardage. Chris Jones is 6'6", 310 pounds. He played for the Kansas City Chiefs, right? He is built to play the nose, but what, what he had to realize was this. Is he a 3-4? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, he, he is. He, he's a 4-3, 3-4, three, three, uh, you know, a defensive tackle. What I'm saying is Jordan Davis is a defensive tackle by trade. He's an interior D lineman. That's what he does. Now, zero technique, one, you know, two technique, whatever. Jordan Davis is going to have to understand this. We get what you do. Can you expand on what you do? This is why I say this. BJ, just say he gets drafted by a team. Defensive coordinator wants to run that 3-4, put him at the nose, boom. They, they don't have a good year. They get, they get rid of that D coordinator. They want to come in with a 4-3. He has to adjust. The reason why I say Ray Lewis is the greatest middle linebacker I've ever seen. He was, listen, Ray Lewis was a 4-3 linebacker. He won defensive player of the year. They get a new coach. I mean, I'm sorry, they get a new scheme. They go to a 3-4. He said, I didn't like it. He embraced it. He became defensive player of the year in a 3-4 defense. What I'm saying is no longer are the days to where they pay you to do one thing. They're going to tell Jordan Davis, you have to be interchangeable. You are too big and too and too and, and mean too much of the scheme to just do one thing. Because if you could just do one thing, they could eliminate you on offense. They can get you out of the game plan. But let's run the ball. Let's think about this. What did Alabama the first time said, run it, run it, throw it. Run it, run it, throw it. That's, that's what they was doing against him the first time. It was, a, it was a different Jordan Davis the second time they played him because they said, Jordan, what? You ready? Because why would they want to do anything different to you until you prove that you could do more than that? So I do I do agree, BJ. Up until this point, look, this is what's going to happen. Either Jordan Davis is going to have to lose weight to be able to stay on the field or he won't be on the field. And, and he won't have a long career. That, that is just how it goes because the thing is this. 340 pounds is a lot of weight to move around, play in, and play out. You know what teams are going to do? Run at him, run at him, run at him again. And then the next play, they're going to throw at him, throw at him. They're going to they're gonna come at him different ways. Listen, Jordan Davis one of the best players in the draft, period. He, he proved that. That's what I had to learn. Every player in the National Football League has to adjust. Jordan Davis is not the only one. We talk about Aiden Hutchinson and all these different big-time pass rushers. 
If you are a pass rusher and you cannot, if you cannot turn that corner consistently, we can't. I, I can't work with you. If one guy can eliminate you, I can't work with you. So for Jordan Davis and everybody like Jordan Davis, look, you were on the most dominant team, on the most dominant defense all year long. That will not happen ever again. Because all I'm saying is, too, some you said, uh, Kevin, most people you went up against, you were better than. Boy, they snapped the ball. They're going, good God, he's really that big. Yep. Those days are over with. So I do agree. I think the, I think the, critic, I think the feedback is, because is, criticism, I don't think it's criticism. I, the feedback is warranted. People, are, I didn't realize that when they breaking down my game, they only want to know what I don't do well. Hey, Ben, yeah, every time we see you, we see you out there catching the rock. We know you can do that. Why don't we ever see you blocking? That's a but hard— when you're, but, but, but when you're drafting a true nose, and I, Georgia fans may know, I don't, I don't remember Jordan Davis playing a 4-3 defensive tackle mm-hmm, position. Mm-hmm, do you? Mm-hmm. No. When you draft a zero-technique nose, aren't you drafting that player for a specific role? Or no, do you have to be a hybrid every situation? You have to every be a situation? hybrid. You, you, have, you have to be a hybrid, BJ, because, you know, you start saying to yourself, look, think about this. Matthew Stafford, is a, he, he, he is uh, responsible for the two most prolific receiving seasons all time. One time was a guy named Megatron that, I mean, you couldn't stop him. Who would have ever thought the second guy would be a guy on the slide? That's him saying, dude, I'm used to a guy on the outside. I can just throw it up to. Oh, I got the slot guy. That's that's a quarterback saying, I got to adjust, you know, how I throw the football because now I'm working in between the numbers compared to a guy who lives on the outside. Jordan Davis, listen, the great Deion Sanders says, your talent gets you in the league, right? How you adjust is will decide if you stay. If Aaron Donald walked in this room, you're going to be like, man, he ain't even that big. He ain't even that tall. And he is the most dominant. He's giving away height, arm length, and size. But 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 the thing but when you but when you snap the ball ninety nine is Freddy Krueger with a jersey on you cannot stop him, I mean Jordan Davis towers over Aaron Donald, and and, and all I'm saying is if he's gonna be BJ they draft they said do we want you to do what you did in college, right you you come from the big bad SEC and y'all won the national championship there are no excuses. But what would you say he did in college? What would you say his? I, I, <laughs> Listen, my thing is he dominated to the point where demand double teams at the line of yes, scrimmage. Yes, de- de- listen. Not only did he demand them, you can't even tell he was getting double team. That's two guys going up against him. I don't believe it's hard to get consistent double teams in the National Football League because these guards and are. That's very, all very I'm elite. saying is is I think if you're drafting Jordan Davis, maybe he's not a good fit for the Falcons. Maybe no, no, he's no, no, not. No, no, I, I, I think, think, would, I think, but I think you're is. drafting him to do what he did in college, not to suddenly be a player that he no, hasn't no, been. No, 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 no. When I say they want you to do what you did in college, they want you to dominate. Like, like, see. Sure. It's not so much. It's not so much. Oh, I want you like it's like this. Look, Ronald Acuna Jr. People didn't say, "Hey, man, he can hit." They said, "No, he can play defensively, offensively, impact." If you Jordan Davis, BJ, if you a GM, if you look at him, you say, "Hey, man, I'm not fit to pay him to sit in front of a center and just push a center back." I'm not doing what. No, I need you to make it so that that center has to double team with that guard. So because because what happens is value is built sure. over time. So that's all I'm saying. Jordan Davis, look, these are good problems, young man. You're gonna go top 15. But BJ, once again, if you draft the guy in the top eight, do you expect him to come off the field or do you expect him to be an impact player? I think it depends on what his role is. His his role his, his listen, his role is to walk out of college and walk into your facility as a starter and be an impact player. That that's what you want him to do. The Fletcher Cottage of the world, the Chris Jones, Aaron Donalds. I mean, because if not, you shouldn't draft him in the top ten. We've got more to come. Plenty of draft. We'll continue to break down as we get closer to the Combine and more. It's 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you here, 3 and Out, on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, glad you're making us a part of your day. Got a little basketball for you tonight uh, coming up as soon as we're done in uh, Savannah. 
you'll hear the dogs. It's Georgia, and it's Alabama. But it's on the hardwood tonight, and uh, Alabama heavily – I mean, they are. Georgia's struggling a little bit on the basketball court. And in Brunswick Waycross, a top, what, 20 matchup, BJ, out of the Big Ten, Michigan State, and Illinois. Two teams you'll certainly be hearing more from as we get – into February and turning the calendar to March. Yeah, I know Ben and I both were hoping you could give us a quick preview of the uh, Michigan State-Illinois game. Well, it's Big Ten basketball. I project the final score will be 56-52. to 52, And I will go with the Spartans. So, so basically, Big 12 football and Big Ten basketball are the same thing? Pretty much. Yes. <laughs> In various different... I will take... I mean, if Tom Izzo play that kind of started that slowdown phase... Of uh, basketball, I wish more leagues would get back to the up tempo. We saw like late '90s, early 2000s, kind of ACC where it was 80, 90 points a night. Uh, but we'll have some basketball for you, Georgia, Bama, there in Savannah, and uh, that's coming up at 6:05, 6:45 in Brunswick and Waycross markets. You'll hear Michigan State and Illinois some Big Ten hoops tonight. Plenty more to get to uh, tomorrow on the show. If you missed any portion of today's show, ESPN Coastal on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, you can. Get a podcast version of the show there as well. Hit us up on Twitter at Pigskin Radio. We'll see you tomorrow all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network.